Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. I'm Patrick Rapole. Oh, boy. Am I stoked for this episode with one of my favorite podcasters out there. He's been on the show a couple of times, actually. What did I, what did I say? Paul Schaefer and Bath Salts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love him. He's one of my favorite podcasters out there. <laughs> oh, boy. Do you want me to just talk boring and monotone, Patrick? NPR you know what style? I, you know what? You know what? I, you know what? Epiphany I had um, the other day is remember we were talking about uh, Jack Black and Walk Hard? Yes. He's doing fake Paul McCartney. He's doing the reason he keeps looking like he's going to get caught is because he isn't Paul McCartney. He's the fake Paul McCartney after the real Paul McCartney died. That's my interpretation of his performance. Which okay. is why he has a Scottish accent. And then when someone asks him if he remembers playing in Hamburg, he goes, oh, oh, yes, of course I do. I booked him. I'm Paul McCartney, <laughs> the leader of the Beatles. I think that's I think he's fake Paul McCartney. We don't have one of the members of the Beatles on the show yet. We do have the co-host of the Cinecast, and he's one of the webmasters at Row3.com. Welcome back. Andrew James to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited too. Mm-hmm. That's some flattering words there. I'm I'm glad I'm one of your favorite podcasters. Oh, clearly every every week I get I get excited for. It's weird because you guys are kind of one of my, two of my favorite podcasters. Oh, oh thank you. That's that's, <laughs> that's very really sweet of you, sweet, Andrew. Yeah. That's the truth. Kind of. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> um. Yeah you you haven't been on the show in a while. Um, we were supposed to do this episode a long time ago before we took our little vacation slash hiatus, but yeah, you were on for Soderbergh and Pedro Almodovar. You know, Patrick, we really need to do a Soderbergh part two. Yeah, we could do that. Yeah. Some point. But we sure. made that promise and I don't want to break promises. Yeah, we I make think- so many promises on this show. <laughs> I don't feel behold. As, as far as I'm concerned, once we record it, it's like... We are technically recording it, but once we're actually done with the episode, it's just lost to the ether, and any promises I've made are they're null and void. Hmm. Null and void? Hmm. Okay, never mind. Scratch that. We are going to talk about a very controversial director, Mr. Roman Polanski. Is that really how you want to introduce this? That's how you want to... That's how you're going to set up Roman Polanski? <laughs> We're going to talk about the controversy. All right, everybody. Round table. Innocent or guilty? Here we go. It's going to be three know. angry men instead of 12. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to talk about that. No, no. I think it's been done to death. Yeah. Everybody's got an opinion. And Correct. that's going to stay that way. We're going to talk about his movies. Which two are we going to focus on, Patrick? Uh, Repulsion and cool. Chinatown. <laughs> oh, boy. That's great. Yeah. 
figure we should just probably focus on his best movies. So mm. Repulsion and Chinatown. Ninth yeah. Gate, Ninth Gate narrowly missed the cut there. Oh, don't, 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 don't start, don't go there yet. Jim oh. really pushed for Ninth Gate, seeing as that's his favorite Polanski movie, but. Not true. It, it, well, I mean, I don't know. You gave it a lot of stars, as I recall, on Letterboxd, and uh, you were a big fan. Letterboxd screwed us all up. I got oh. at least two requests for the Ninth Gate debate, so it's going to happen at some point throughout <laughs> this next two hours. Sure, sure. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot more interesting films from his filmography, but I... Uh, you just can't help yourself. You love The Ninth Gate yeah, so much. I, I know. You just love harping on that so much, Patrick. Well, you That's do. I, I, not that I know of, unless you know something I don't. Unless well, you into my I, I, and I, I, know what, I know what you put on your letterbox, and that was a lot of stars. No, that was three stars, and that was an error. <laughs> We went through this before with Frank and the Descendants, so I don't know what the deal is with Letterbox. I can't explain that. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a mystery. It's an intriguing mystery. We're gonna get to the yeah. bottom of it, and it, it would be weird. it would only be the second shittiest uh, Polanski thriller. Ooh. It would be you trying to once again Paul Schaefer with bath salts, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, unless bath salts, you know, are an ingredient in Schlitz beer. I don't know. It's possible. That would be an interesting choice. Is that what you're drinking? Schlitz? I'm, I'm sorry. Does that offend you? They ran Not out of all. old they <laughs> ran out of old style. Beer's beer in my opinion. I just, Oh yeah. Uh, no, we're we're sticking with old style and Schlitz these days for the cheapos. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So a couple of things up front. Um Launched my website today, which is instantgym.com. Uh, I'm going to be writing reviews there and, you know, posting fun stuff, uh, including songs I'm working on and any other things going on. Um, Patrick, why don't you tell people about the bonus episode that we recorded? Uh, we recorded a bonus episode, and it's about how much Jim loves turtles. Toitles. Toitles. It's how much he loves toitles in a trench coat. You're going to LaGuardia, right? I watched that movie so many times as a child, the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. I feel like if we if I went back now and I watched the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, um, I would not be able to separate myself from the hundred plus viewings I saw as a child, and I would I would think it was still brilliant. That's possible. Nostalgia always plays into viewing experiences sometimes. It does always play into viewing experiences sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you. I'm just checking out your new website, Jim. I, there's a picture of a girl wiping semen off of her lips. Yeah. I like that. That's par for the course. Yeah. I can see where this site's going already. It looks yeah. very yeah. nice, though. I would, I would give that three stars. I gave it a B-. <laughs> Um, like the site or the semen? <laughs> Both. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, I'm I'm actually giving WordPress a try. Ooh. <sighs> Getting away from Tumblr. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna okay everybody at home, take a drink every time Jim does something that sounds like Paul Schaefer on bath salts would do. <laughs> I'm really happy with that all of a sudden. I like this change. Um That's so scary. yeah. Website 
bonus episode. Is there something else that I'm forgetting? I don't think so. Okay. So I, I need, yeah, I have yeah. nothing to announce. Okay. So let's just move on then. I could talk more about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, the, the the motion picture with uh, Elias Codius as Casey Jones. That's right. I could I talk about, about how you got to know what cricket is to know. No, you got to know what a crumpet is to know how to play cricket. Hmm. For some reason, I just remember them like saying bossa nova at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, because Donatello's always trying out. Uh, he's trying out new slang. Hmm. So he goes. So they're all like radical, excellent, and then Donatello jumps out. He goes bossa nova, and they all look at him and they go bossa nova, and then he goes Chevy Nova, and then they're still looking at him. And then he goes something else. I don't know. I wow. could go all night like this. I could do the. Let's just make that the episode. <laughs> yeah. <judgment>. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> so at this point, Shredder walks out and he's like super <laughs> spooky and he's like, you are all my children. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. It, it's weird. The, uh, the ninjas they fight um, in that movie. Now that I think about it, they're actually just a it's just a cult of runaway teens. Hmm. It's kind of a dark premise, uh, considering in the cartoon they were robot ninjas. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. I just obviously remember Vanilla Ice from the second one. All right. Let's move on. Okay. Okay. To the What We Watch segment. Drop Dead Friends. Okay, here we are at the web. <laughs> here we are. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited because you are basically Jack Black um, doing Paul McCartney <laughs> in one car right now. It feels like you're pretending to be Jim, and you're <laughs> and right now you're going, "Yep, podcast." Done a bunch of these before. You know what? I have watched a lot of body snatcher movies lately. Yeah, there you go. Podcast. I think, I think you got snatched. Pod people podcast. Ooh. Yeah. Mm. Hmm. So, tell me about. Or is that what you want to talk about? No, because we talked about that in our bonus episode. Right, we did. Who's got Who's got the icy drink? Uh, right that's, by their that's, mic. Still, that's, that's still me. Okay. Sounds uh, like lemonade. 
Thank you. Andrew? Yes, sir. I want you to go first, please. Good, good call back to a joke that wasn't on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's what makes it so great. Uh, Watchlist. Sh- yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Yep. Sure. I just got finished um, two weeks at the Minneapolis Film Festival. Saw a lot, a lot of good stuff. Um, but the best thing I saw, and one of those movies that I think is going to show up on a lot of top ten lists at the end of the year. In fact. It's probably going to be on a lot of top three lists, to be honest. Uh, is called Rich. It's called Boyhood by Richard Linklater. Um, if you're not familiar, which you probably are as a listener of this show, but he's the director of the Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight films, um, and Dazed and Confused. Um, and Boyhood is sort of like if you took Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before Midnight and melded them all together into one film. In other words, this uses uh, the same characters and it's shot over the course of 11 years. Hmm. Uh, So he started shooting it in like 2001 or 2002 and ended in 2013 sometime. Um, And it starts uh, starts with about a seven-year-old boy and it ends on his first day of college and you just follow his life, all the adventures that he gets into with his friends, all of the parental drama that he has to go through. Um, just life basically high school, junior high, bad haircuts. Um, and it's, it's fantastic. It is so fantastic. It is amazingly brilliant. Um, all of it was written by Richard Linklater. Uh, his parents are played by Ethan Hawke and Patricia Arquette. Um, and just all of the, di- I mean, I wouldn't say anything like really terribly exciting happens. It's not like the Goonies or something like that. It's just it's more <laughs> real life. Uh, oh, if we can, we can only wish. It's it not sounds one like of those the, the thrill rides series. like the Goonies. It's, it is like the seven up series, except it's, it's fiction. It's not a, I mean, obviously with Ethan Hawke and Patricia Arquette is you know, it, it is kind of like the Seven Up series, but all put together into one three-hour movie, um, and the fact that it's fiction rather than nonfiction. Um, and I, I don't know. I feel like that almost makes it more interesting, just because I don't know. Like I, I have trouble getting into the Seven Up series. I know it's super beloved by many people, including one of my co-hosts. Um, but I, I always have trouble like getting back into the sw- swing of things after seven years and sure. kind of remembering who's been. This is like the flash forwards are immediate. There's there's no wipe. There's no fade in and out. Just all of a sudden, it's two years later, and oh look, the kid has grown a little bit. Oh, now his sister has braces. Um, and hmm. I don't know. Just all the interaction between all of the characters is just so honest and yet magnetic at the same time. And um, I don't know, it's difficult to explain without, without having seen it, but I feel like I told Kurt this on the show. Once this movie does hit wide, uh, wide release in July, it will be so easy to sit down and have a two hour conversation about the film, about all the stuff that goes on, all the pushes and pulls and elements to real life. I mean, you can be 85 years old or you could be 11, and there is stuff in here that you will empathize with, absolutely, and relate to. Um, It's good-looking, the main kid. I mean, think about it. So they pulled this kid who at the time was like seven, 
and said, we're going to make a movie and it's going to be all about you or mostly about you. And it's going to go on throughout your entire childhood and adolescence all the way up into college. Like that is ballsy. Mm-hmm. And Quite ambitious. Extremely ambitious. And the fact that it even came out like at all is pretty surprising. The fact that it came out absolutely magnificent is, is I, it's astounding that he was able to pull it off. And this isn't just me talking. I mean, if you look up Boyhood on in any review or Rotten, I think it's a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, and everybody I talked to at the, the screening, like we just walked out and went, "Wow, that that was something special." Like well, I, mean, I feel like this is already my number one movie of the year. We'll see, but I mean, that's um, I mean, that's Linkletter. That's one of his gifts, isn't it? Is to take very ordinary um, sort of. Um, even the mundanities of life and make them really, really great. I mean, that's what makes Dacing Infused so strong. That's one of the strengths of Slacker. That's like I, I and so I, I, def- I definitely believe that he could make a movie like this. Um, and honestly, it's probably the right choice just to not um, uh, to not make it too complicated. Because um, imagine if it was like a, a high concept kind of a story and he tried to sort of use this really uh, startling uh, kind of technique of, of uh, you know, filming it over the course of 10 years. Um, that would be that would, that would probably just be too much. Uh, it did. The one thing that I am interested in is um, so it was like shot over the course of 11 years. Um, obviously, all the characters grow. Mm-hmm. Um, as as they're making it, but do did Linkletter grow at all? Does he use the exact same camera during all eleven years? Apparently, did- yes. Apparently, it's all thirty five mil from start to finish. I I did not notice any sort of either degradation or um, appreciation in the quality of the film stock. To me, it looked everything looked like one seamless film. So in fact, that's the guys next to me. There was a couple of old guys next to me. And one of them at the end of the thing said he, he wanted to stay and watch the cast because he wanted to know who, who played the main character um, <laughs> through, each, like, through each age progression. And I looked at him and I said, it's the same kid. They filmed and this does, over 11 years. He didn't even notice. And, the, and all the segments, they're sort of shot the same kind of style. Because that's, that's a remarkable act of patience as an artist to like, okay, this is what I'm doing, and in order for it to be coherent, I can't change my mind halfway through it and be like, oh, actually, I'd kind of think it'd be more interesting if I shot and edited it like this. Mm-hmm. Like, it, is it all? It all looks the same. It's all shot sort of the same way, edited the same way. It has the same sort of vocabulary. Yep. Absolutely, that's it's really consistent all the way through it. It's it's fantastic. It would have been interesting if he just shot like one segment in rotoscope for no reason. <laughs> he's, he did that with two of his strongest movies in my opinion but it's funny because he's going to be our next director for the next episode um, wait what two movies did he do in rotoscope for no reason oh no I meant like if he incorporated that into boyhood <laughs> just like all of a sudden cut to that because that was the period of time you know where he did Waking Life and Scanner Darkly Scanner Darkly yeah, yeah. right but yeah I, I thought you meant he, he two of his movies he had a segment that was rotoscope for no reason. No. Sorry. Yep. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, the movie starts like the first 15 minutes or so. I, the only thing that I would say is inconsistent a little bit is the first 15 minutes or so feels a little unpolished, not in terms of visually, but definitely like because of the characters. So the kid is six or seven. Um, his sister is Richard Linklater's daughter, actually, playing his sister. Um Patricia Arquette, like none of the chemistry or even the dialogue feels particularly um, like inspired at all. It it feels really kind of bland and plasticky and fake. Um, Then Ethan Hawke shows up about 15, 20 minutes into the film and instantly lifts it up. Um, you you kind of get on board with this guy. He's a veteran. He's a good actor. He's worked with Linklater before. Then um, you flash forward. I don't know. Each time you flash forward, it's maybe a, it's like two years, three years, something like that. Um, and you know you flash forward because, well, the kid's grown a little bit. People's hair is a little bit different. They're playing different video game consoles. Uh, their cell phones have gotten a little bit better, whatever. Um, but outside of the visual cues within the story, within the dynamic of the characters, there's no... Um, you know, like okay, so there's no like it's not it's not segmented, not at all. It's an so it's not cut like and okay. you just have to acclimate yourself, and you acclimate yourself usually literally within ten seconds. Like you go, That's oh, oh, okay. I, I didn't. I had assumed that it was like basically short films that were attached together from the way it had been described with chapters or something. Not right. at all. No title cards. No fades. Um you just all of a sudden um he's got a different bike <laughs> oh that's <laughs> you know, great or, or whatever wow. um yeah and and the great thing is side character it's amazing side characters uh will be uh, show up earlier in the film and then they kind of disappear for a while and then they come back later in the movie which is like 7 years later and you go holy shit he brought that character back literally 7 years later and <laughs> It's seamless. It works. I actually I mean, had tears in my eyes at one point. Not necessarily. I mean, it was a good scene that was happening, but partly because it finally, it finally just everything kind of clicked for me about what I was seeing and how amazing it was, and like just the experience I was having. It was it was kind of breathtaking. And it's not totally unheard of. I mean, the uh, before uh, series that he does. Mm-hmm. It, is sort of the same premise where that's um, the what is that every 11 years he makes a uh, one of those movies I think it's every 9 yeah every yeah, 9 something years. like that okay yeah. um and there's also i mean the sort of that sensation is also present when you say watch like the Harry Potter movies um you can watch these actors kind of grow up in um yeah absolutely but it's but it's that. certainly yeah. but it's certainly a rarity i think yeah i think the only time you ever really see people age is when it's sort of a big franchise that has a lot of characters. Um, and then all of a sudden, like look uh, at Rocky. Actually, Rocky is one of the movies I defend um, furiously because it's the only real franchise I can think of where uh, Rocky starts out in Rocky one. He's basically a kid. He's just, just getting into his career. And by the time Rocky Balboa comes out, He's a re- he's retired. Like he's gone through all this stuff, and every movie's the same. But it's still this huge arc of a guy's career, 
that's pretty amazing when you think about it that way. It's it's really well done. Yeah, I mean, and it's uh, I mean, the it's more Rocky Balboa was sort of I mean, not that I'm super familiar with all the Rocky sequels, but I feel like Rocky Balboa was the one that was that's this is the one that's explicitly about him aging, mm-hmm. whereas this technique, if you're going to be covering pre mm-hmm. prepubescence to him going to college like that, that to me is you're emphasizing that the theme of this is aging and how people, you know, grow and progress and become different people and how they're formed. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is a better film than the Rocky movies, but I don't know, like Rocky, he has a kid, he has a baby in one and then his kid is a little older in one. And then his kid's a little older than the other. He has, his wife goes through cancer and his uncle or whatever goes through alcoholism. He goes through financial woes, um, the whole story, I don't remember which Rocky it is about him like being taken advantage of by the managers and stuff. I don't know how we got started talking about Rocky, I guess. But I don't know. It, it's a pretty interesting arc as superficial and sort of simplistic maybe as it is. Um, whereas this movie is totally not superficial or simplistic. It's it's really dealing with, and I shouldn't, I should say it's not just the kid either. Like you you get on board with Patricia Arquette and watch her as a single mother uh, going through things. I won't. I'll, it's more fun to go th- in as clean as possible. But sure, sure. Going through things and she matures. Ethan Hawke's character, the father, uh, he matures as you go on. You follow the sister. Um, there's friends and um, other sib- uh, like step siblings and stuff like that that you kind of latch onto. Other people come and go just like in real life friends for a while then they disappear and you get into high school you got a different girlfriend it's 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 kind of complex and simple at the same time if that makes any sense at all i mean it's as complex as adolescence gets i guess i'm really looking forward to it i just um re-watched days and confused and was like blown away by how perfect that movie is in every way including the music cues are there any, like in terms of, you know, how music changed over the course of, you know, how many years he filmed it? Did he include any interesting music cues at all? Yeah, um, that would be maybe one mild complaint is some of the musical cues are maybe a bit obvious. Hmm. Some of them are not. Some of them are like, oh, shit, yeah, they, this is this. Um, I can't remember specifically, but I do remember thinking that while I was watching it, like, oh, of course you used this song or whatever. Um, but I mean, it helps. I think he's using it a little bit to help get you in tune to what year it is. Sure. Um, but I mean, there's some Daft Punk in there and some Coldplay, like Hootie and the Blowfish, I think, or stuff like that. I, I, I'm not sure what this (laughs) soundtrack was. Yeah. I'm, and plus I think Hootie and the, wait, wait, (laughs) what years does this take place from? Is this supposed to be from? Oh, sorry. Okay. I don't think Hootie and the Blowfish is in this. I just threw that out there. Uh, like, does it end in 2006? Like, with the Hootie and the Blowfish reunion <laughs> tour. Yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah. Hootie and the Blowfish is not correct. I'm trying to find a soundtrack here. I don't see it. You're but. thinking of Darius Rucker's solo career mm-hmm. as a country yeah, that singer. That must be totally what it is. He, he turned yeah. into a country singer? He sure did. Wow. Him and Kid Rock. Yeah. Oh, man. 
No, I just, and also I think Ethan Hawke should just work with Richard Linklater from now on. And also, just like those before movies, you see like Ethan Hawke become a better actor through each of those movies. Because I like him in the first one, but I really like him in the second one. And then the third one, I was like, shit, Ethan Hawke connect. <laughs> is, is the third one when he finds out there's a ghost in his house? Yes. Okay, yeah, no, he was really good in the third one. Was what movie was that again? Sinister. Oh, okay. I never saw that. Sinister is a funny movie because uh, it's like an investigative sort of a thing where the whole thing is you him trying to uncover what's going on. But I guess because they also wanted it to be a haunted house movie, he does all this crazy amount of investigation without ever leaving his house, which just means he's constantly on the internet. Um, and then at certain points it gets like ridiculous, so he's like skyping with a college professor of mythology or whatever. And this differs from my life. How? Well, basically, I was just thinking about it as haunted house movies from when I, when I, when I saw it. It was like haunted house movies from like the 50s to the 80s were pretty much one thing, um, which is just, oh, it's an old spooky house. And it's like whether it's an old spooky house in the haunting or the changeling, you know, the way they deal with it is kind of the same. But like if, if you showed Sinister to someone 10 years ago, it would just look like a science fiction movie. Like it would just be really weird. Oh, yeah. Like, like why is it, what is that thing he's holding and he's like touching and then he's looking up stuff on the internet? I guess, but that doesn't look like my internet. Oh no, no, yeah, no, that's a iPhone. Did you know like, that Network was nominated as a science fiction movie when it first came out? What do you mean it was nominated by who? I don't know. I just know that was <laughs> it was it was a, considered a science fiction movie when it first came out. You you sounded Paul you, Thomas Anderson. Is this the podcast like, where we just make shit up as yeah, we go Yeah, you sound like you sound like Paul Schaefer coming down from bath salts. <laughs> okay. Did you know Network was nominated for science fiction? What does that <laughs> mean, true. Paul? I don't know. Ugh, you got any gum? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey Jim, um, will it float? I'm telling you. Was Hootie and the Blowfish in the soundtrack? Hootie and the Blowfish was on they David Letterman's show. Time just to appear in Network. Sure, sure. Man. I'm not crazy. This is something you can look up. I'm not nuts. There is a there is a science fiction like a national science fiction award. Yeah, probably. Thing. It's like take it pretty the seriously. Academy, the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, or something, something like that. I think it's got a more official like a like the you know like the Caldecott Medal, but they call it something else. It's almost become it's. It, I mean, it's become a cliche at this point to just say like, "Oh, network." Someone watching it today, they wouldn't even know it was satire. But <laughs> the Hugo like, Awards, sorry, right? But it's not science fiction. There's no science. There's no technology that doesn't exist in in network. That's like saying, "Oh, that's such crazy satire" is one thing, but like, but that, that doesn't mean it was science fiction back then. Hmm. Are you thinking about Videodrome? No. I'm telling you, it's true. You're thinking about Videodrome. I, I got learned, it. I learned this from Paul Thomas Anderson. Are you thinking about Scanner Cop? I'm thinking of Trancers. Trancers. You're thinking of Trancers 3. Mm-hmm. Okay. We got it. Case closed. Ghost in the Trancers Machine. 3. Yeah. So, Jim, I've, J- so, Jim, I've heard that you've been watching Trancers lately. <laughs> no. tell, me, tell me about Full Moon. Although I did... I did Science have a crush on Helen series. Hunt for a little while there. Was she in Trancers? Yeah. Okay. Was she in she Scanner was Cop? No. Okay. 
I had a crush on Helen Hunt for a long time too. I, she's I, still a pretty lady. Yeah, to be honest with you. She's pretty and she's funny. And Mad About You, she's she's funny. She's that's like that's the distinguishing feature of Mad About You is that the wife gets to be funny. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And in Twister, she chases tornadoes. Yeah, that so they're very happy. Right, exactly. So anyway, anyway, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Jim. Trancers. I, I'm not talking about <laughs> trancers. Quit putting words and reviews in my mouth. <laughs> Why did you give trancers three stars? <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you what I really liked. A movie called Joe. Oh, yeah? Really? I wanted to see this. I haven't caught up with it yet. Yeah, you should. I will. It's on VOD, right? I think I can get it on the Google Movies. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's on VOD. Yeah, well, obviously. That's how I saw it. All right. All right. So, everybody knows that I'm, I I love David Gordon Green. Pretty much everything. Except Your Highness and The Sitter. So, um, last year he returned with Prince Avalanche, which was, I was quite a huge fan of. Um, It was, you know, in terms of plot, it really didn't have a lot going for it. It was just hanging it was more of like a hanging out movie with two guys and i certainly liked the fact that it was considered and you know a return to form for him but this is more along the lines of a southern gothic kind of drama and he can make this kind of movie in his sleep because he pretty much did it with undertow and snow angels um and i think a few people in general especially if they're familiar with his work can certainly have the feeling when it's all over, like, well, that was good, but man, he's he's done this kind of thing before. Um, but because I love this style, I love the themes, I love what he brings to this kind of story. I just I ate this movie up. It's it may not be bringing a whole lot new to the table in terms of plot, but um, I just love what he does, and some of it, you know. It features a few things that we've come to know from a few of his films, including some non-actors improvising. Um, There's a lot surrounding the job that these side characters do, which involves clearing out trees for landowners. And there's family quarreling, domestic issues. It is a little mud-esque in that regard. But here you got uh, Nicolas Cage with some serious internal conflict going on. Um, just because he's trying to avoid being confrontational and he's just trying to live a simple life, but crazy things keep coming up and he has to deal with them. So, um, it's, it's definitely right in my wheelhouse. It has like, you know, in terms of confrontations that take place, almost like a Western like feel, uh, cause there's just, you know, pretty much one main villain that, you know, Cage has to eventually um, confront. And Nicholas Cage has not been this good in a long time. And, you know, I realize that some people would be like, well, it's he's just playing it subtle and that's that. But uh, I think he brings a lot of nuance to his performance by just, you know, um, not overacting at all. Like, I think it's a really appropriate choice on, on the part of his character. Um so I overall like I just think you know David Gordon Green especially even with Prince Avalanche he plays with these ideas surrounding masculinity 
Um, and you know, what does it mean to be a man? And it's another coming of age story too, with Ty Sheridan, who was also in mud. Um, so again, this movie isn't like breaking new ground, but for what it does, I think it's really effective. There's a couple of incredibly violent and shocking moments. And, uh, when it was all over, I was just like, I'm so glad David Gordon Green is making these kind of movies again. Well, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm right there with you. Like, I, when I saw the trailer for Your Highness, I went, really? This is yeah. where you're going after all the real girls and Undertow and Snow Angels? Uh, I was really disappointed. So uh, I'm glad to hear that he's really back on track. And I guess the one thing that, that has been sort of, I guess, putting me off, well, just besides being super busy, is the totally, it's, it looks like mud. Three it's, letters in the title. It's a con out in the woods. It's got the same kid. Um, it's the only thing I think that's sort of been keeping me away. I think it's just David Gordon Green distinguishes himself by um, being a little bit more improvisational um, mm-hmm. and... I mean, like his scores are really haunting, and and uh, I mean, he does have his Terrence Malick like moments of just focusing on nature and stuff like that. But it's a it, it is a definitely I don't know how to distinguish necessarily the main character of Mud from Joe, other than uh, you know Nicholas Cage. You know, he's he's trying to live a normal, simple life in town while Matthew McConaughey is pretty much just trying to live out in the woods. Uh, but there's there's some really interesting confrontations that take place that I think will really take people aback, and I mm-hmm. certainly can't say enough good things about um, the actor who plays Ty Sheridan's father, who didn't act a day in his life. He was a homeless guy, and mm. they just found him, and it's so natural and so scary. Like I just, and it's sad because he, he passed away um, right after the movie was completed too. So he never got to see it, but Holy crap. (laughs) He's, he totally stands out in this movie. It's a character you won't forget. That's too bad. I I love it when it's, I I hesitate to say stunt casting, but I love it when these just absolutely no name people, maybe even not even actors, show up in a movie and just blow you away. I, I love it when that happens. I know Soderbergh's done it a couple times. And, oh, yeah. Uh, well, that's too bad. I was going to say it's too bad he passed away because it would be cool if it's one of those homeless, like, rags to riches right. kind of thing where he's all of a sudden nominated for an Oscar. Like the guy from uh, Minneapolis who was in Captain Phillips, you know, he was oh, a taxi yeah, yeah, driver, yeah. and all of a sudden he's nominated for an Academy Award. Like, I love stories like that especially when the performance really blows you away as it does in this case, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And you think David Gordon Green handles uh, Nick Cage pretty well? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's interesting to see him in this locale, this setting. And it, at moments, like I was thinking, this is more of like a uh, restrained take on his character in leaving Las Vegas. Cause he's got a lot of, demons and he mm-hmm. occasionally tries to escape them whether it's through alcohol or through women or um but he he clearly is a he's kind of one of those small town guys who just wants to live a simple life and work a decent job and uh help people out and he's not at all selfish in any way 
but I think it's really like just a testament to the loose and each like the naturalism of the world that David Gordon Green creates that Cage just fits right in without ever calling attention to like this is a performance and I'm doing something completely different and I'm playing it you know low key at all at all costs. Uh, I think it's really a remarkable movie and again other people especially coming after Mud may not feel as strongly as I do but again like it's just because his this is my scene like what he does I always find really really gratifying going all the way back to George Washington so I just hope that he continues on this path and what he's got next, it could be even coming out later this year, from what I heard. It's a movie with Al Pacino. So hmm. we'll see what happens with that. I haven't Who heard Pac- that name in a while. Yeah. Who would Al Pacino play in a Suspiria remake? <laughs> I don't think he's doing that yet, if uh, ever. Well, maybe, maybe it's like Scent of Woman. He's playing the blind piano player. Hmm. Could be. It's probably what's happening. Looks like David Gordon Green uses the same cinematography for or cinematographer for pretty much everything. Right. Yep. Joe Orr, if I'm not mistaken, or Tim Orr. Tim, Tim Orr. Orr. Yeah. And again, great, uh, great score. I think it's uh, the same guy he's done the last few movies with. It's very um, explosions in the sky, like. Nice. Yeah. Patrick, you got to see it. I should. <laughs> Bless you. Thank you. Oh, boy. I don't know how I'm going to talk about Under the Skin. I don't know either. Um, I can help you a little. Oh, yeah. you saw it? Yeah, yeah. I saw it. <laughs> oh, good. I, it's not opening up till my birthday, so that's what I'm going to be doing. Yeah, well, the same is also true of Scarlett Johansson. I don't know. That was a dumb joke. Um, what? It is... What was that sound? <laughs> I don't know. That was... Paul Schaefer on Bath Salts, I think. Um, it's if you've heard, if, okay. So if you've heard a synopsis of Under the Skin, well, then I really can't spoil anything for you because it is a very repetitive movie um, by design. Um, it is uh, Scarlett Johansson as an alien being of some kind, um, sort of trolling around uh, Glasgow in a van, uh, picking Down by men the up. River. Thank you. Sorry. Hey, um, picking men up and uh, luring them to, I suppose, what is her lair or spaceship. Um, it's basically kind of abstract, represented by a completely black space. You don't see any kind of uh, forms or, you know. And it seems to be like she gets to it uh, via just any door. So. It's obviously just some sort of technology that they don't explain, which is a good thing. Because um, <laughs> the one, the one thing you can say about this movie is that it's unlike any movie you've ever seen, and part of that is how opaque it is, um, and how there's no exposition at all of any kind ever. Um, I don't think there's like other than one conversation that happens somewhere a little towards the middle of the movie. I don't think there's any dialogue at all that you could call vital. Like this could be a silent film, um, uh, especially with its score, which does a lot of the heavy lifting. The score is really, 
really good, especially when they're in their layer. It's this repeating sort of violin piece that is really upsetting. <laughs> it's it's really haunting. And so I guess it it's a movie it's a movie worth seeing and it's really really interesting. But I certainly did not I would not say I Ah oh. Ah oh. First half is visually very striking and interesting and even the the story was going somewhere kind of interesting, but I found the second half to be quite a slog. I, it, all of a sudden, the the main character, Scarlett Johansson, her character just like becomes a completely different person, and the story takes a completely different turn of what it was and where it was going. And I just kind of got not lost um, like plot wise, but just lost in terms of character motivation like why are you all of a sudden totally this meek kind of boring character i get she's trying to like experience human feelings and and um become more human or whatever but i i don't know i didn't find it particularly interesting or anything i hadn't really contemplated or seen before i think mike d'angelo had a similar reaction like he thought for like an hour or so it was one of the best movies he's seen in a long time and then yeah. that change kind of threw him for a loop i guess yeah, yeah and it's on I, a dime i read i read that and uh i really don't agree with that at all the no? idea that it's on it i think the movie is pretty steady the whole way through and to the point where that was why i wasn't a big fan of it was because it was too repetitive um that change in her comes very gradually and it happens and it happens a lot earlier than the point where she actually, and again, I don't want to spoil anything, because um, I went into this not knowing anything about it. But again, it is so repetitive that um, it can be hard to distinguish individual events. Um, but basically, there's a point in the movie, and you will know it when you see it, because you'll probably say to yourself, "Holy fuck," because it's a very striking scene um, where uh, there's sort of a shift in her. But that shift very subtly and ambiguously, um, because, again, there's really not any dialogue or anything. Hmm. But I think that shift was foreshadowed um, a bit. Uh, As she seduces the men, basically what happens is they follow her and they end up in – whether they follow her like into an alley or into a room or something, they end up in that space. Did you hear me talk about the space? No, the sludge. Well, no, no, the just sort of the area that they, she lures them into. Um, it's just purely abstract blackness. You don't see any mm-hmm. defining features of any kind. And as she she walks away from them undressing, you know, implying sex, like she's, you know, they're going to have sex or whatever. And then they do the rest where they completely undress. And then they end up, as they're following her, falling into sludge, you know, like uh, uh, like an animal being lured into a, a, a I believe there's a type of spider that sort of does that um, or even a type of like a pitcher plant or something where it's uh, like a plant that catches flies um, that slide down into it. So that sort of stuff happens. And then um, there's a couple sequences like that and they're very, very, they have the exact same music, really, really great score. um, And they're very, very, very similar, but there's a slight change um, throughout them, uh, and I think that telegraphs sort of that change. And I didn't. I it made sense to me. 
I just necessarily I didn't necessarily find it a super compelling movie other than the fact that I find any movie that I that is completely unlike anything I've ever seen I tra- I tend to find that interesting. I mean there are exceptions code unknown I couldn't finish cuz and that was and I can't say I've seen another movie like that but I just hated that. Um but so I mean I would definitely recommend people see it and I think it's really interesting. I like it's really interesting the way they made it by actually having Scarlett Johansson pick up men on the street in a van. Whoa. Um and sort of just with hidden, special hidden cameras in the van and like there's and I think it there's something really interesting about the opening ten minutes or so before the story proper even starts that is so disorienting that it puts you it sort of has it does the amazing feat where it puts you in the mind of this alien who's con- like who's this totally opaque kind of character you don't really know what's going on in her head at any given point, but it does a good job of making everything look weird and foreign um and the fact that it is shot in Glasgow and it has all uh, – it uses mostly non-actors um, means that – and the fact that it's not subtitled means that most of the dialogue is completely impenetrable, um, which I found really fascinating because it's sort of – and it's another distancing um, thing where you can sort of make out what they're saying but you sort of can't and it feels <laughs> – it just honestly feels like – like you're in a foreign country and you only kind of know the language um, and it, which again is sort of puts you in her shoes. Um, and sort of, I, I mean, if I, if I was going to go into detail about what the movie's about without spoiling anything, it's sort of just about um, how she is uh, sort of telling men what they want to hear and that's how she seduces them. And then, uh, Slowly, instead of just sort of playing a character, instead of just doing the exercise that you need to do in order to get men to follow you so that you can devour them, uh, (laughs) she begins to actually have conversations um, and sort of that disconnect between uh, seduction and relation. uh, It's it's almost – Feminist movie, I would say, because there's – and again, I can't spoil anything, but uh, some of the events later in the film kind of feel like uh, uh, like the disconnect between what sex – what she was taught what sex is and then what sex actually is. And it, it, it felt um, very much sort of just like the way that um, – women are uh i i can't put this into words it's a confusing movie one of the things that i i've noticed pe- a lot of people comparing it to kubrick um no nope. which is weird i i don't get that like everybody and i don't really get that i told kurt i said i've never actually seen a tarkovsky film but i feel like this is what a like if if there was a species four came out and tarkovsky directed it this is what it would be um, remake of Life Force. No, it's not Life Force. Life Force <laughs> is a totally different thing. Um, I guess I, I think I, I think people get lazy and they use directors' names um, very broadly when they. I mean, like, well, I mean, Glazer's not, past stuff like Birth is is very Kubrick esque. Oh yeah, um, totally. 
I think that's undeniable. But this one, I mean, I guess there's sort of some 2001 kind of type imagery, but outside of that, very little though. I don't know. I feel like it's it's kind of its own thing. I haven't well, seen I mean, anything not, like not, it. And, and not not to pick on Jim, but every time he calls, uh, every time Jim uses like. You know, I, I, I not and not just Jim, but we both do. Like, we'll we'll use the word De Palma to mean highly formalistic, and they can be films that don't look anything like De Palma films. But we'll just use the the name De Palma as shorthand for highly formalistic, or we'll use the name Malik for focuses on nature and you know sort of right. short focus. Uh, you know, like there there really isn't a David Gordon Green film that is actually like a Terrence Malick movie. That that movie doesn't exist. Like George Washington is a little close almost, but his movies aren't actually like Malick's movies. They just sort of remind you of Malick a little bit because mm-hmm. of the focus on nature and stuff like that. Yes. And I think the word Kubrick, the name Kubrick, just to a lot of people means cold and intellectual. Yeah, people compared the master to Kubrick. And I, uh, I don't know if I saw that really. I don't know. I'm not. I'm. I'm no scholar. I don't. I'm not a really huge fan of Kubrick's, and I. I, I certainly don't watch his films a lot. So I. I guess I can't really speak to it either way. But yeah. Kubrick's not who I thought of, especially considering how much of the film was so naturalistic and improvised, um, hmm. which which is not something Kubrick would ever do. Like when you when you have your main actress picking up strangers in a van and you're filming them with a hidden camera. Um, what you can't do is ask for a second take. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I can see myself seeing this movie again and sort of getting more into it. But I really think that whatever this movie is about, I don't have a deep enough connection to it to sort of be hypnotized by it. Um, hmm. I so I, it, I, I, it's. I mean, it is one of my favorite movies of the year so far because I've only seen like three movies, <laughs> 2014 movies. But like it's it's not um, – I was – especially for how hotly I was anticipating it, it was almost a little bit of a disappointment. But it is – I mean it is basically what it was billed as, which is a very intellectual, very fascinating, very unique film. Um, so I think people should see it, but I don't know. It's kind of how I felt about Enemy. Sure. A little bit. Yeah, that's – like I really admired it and I really got into it. Um, I need to see it again before I can finally say, okay, I I absolutely know what it's trying to convey to me. Uh, but it's yeah, those those really oblique sort of intellectual movies are totally my thing. So I'm if it's very uh, cerebral, then I'm gonna I'll, I'll get into it. Basically, under the skin is an exploration into human emotion and feelings. Th- through a being that has no emotions or feelings. But I think I I think putting it that way is not counting the fact of everything about the way Scarlett Johansson's, you know, and I put scare quotes around this, but quote unquote character cuz even calling her or even calling what she does a character is um sort of not quite correct, but but everything about her and how she interacts with everyone is about her the gender they perceive her to be. Um, and I think making it – if you just say it's broadly about humanity, 
or about inhumanity. Um, that to me is discounting a huge part of the film, which is it's all about um, how people don't view her as human to begin with. Uh, they just like view her as, oh, it's a flirtatious, it's a flirtatious lady, and they're just trying to see what they can get out of her. And then once she becomes less of a predator, uh, I'll, I'll say, then suddenly what they can get out of her is very different and that becomes a different sort of thing. And again, to me, that's all coded through gender, not necessarily through mm. humanity. Ooh. Well, I sure hope Jamiroquai shows up in this movie. Because I was looking up uh, Jonathan Glazer's music videos and he did that crazy Jamiroquai video for Virtual Insanity. With the moving floor? Yeah. Uh, that was a great video. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he also did... Uh, a song for Uncle featuring Tom York, Rabbit in Your Headlights, and of course, Karma Police, which is very memorable. I never realized his uh, accomplishments as a music video director. I've just, I've seen Sexy Beast and I've seen Birth and I love them both. A lot of the, a lot of British directors start there because it's, the British film industry doesn't make nearly as many movies as Hollywood, so, uh, you know, Edgar... him to make a movie. Edgar Wright started doing music videos. Uh, David Fincher did. You know, it's uh, it's it's um, it's a more steady work. Hmm. Great, great, great. Well, I'll be seeing that in a couple weeks. Cool. Yeah. What else is there to look forward to? Uh, have you seen Rick and Morty? Oh yeah, we talked about that. Not on the podcast. We didn't? Nope. Oh. It's a good show. You should see it. <laughs> it's it's Dan 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 Harmon. Dan Harmon who did community. Right, right. Is it it's his new show. Oh, okay. It's an animated show on Adult Swim. It's sort of like Doctor Who, except the moral of every single episode is that the universe is infinite and you are insignificant um and wow. nothing and nothing means anything. It's it's basically the most existential show I've ever seen other than like maybe the towards the end of the Sopranos or something. Um, but it's a comedy. So it's, it's not a, it's not always a laugh romp. Sometimes it goes really dark places, but it's really fucking interesting and it's really good. Yeah. And Andrew, you were a fan of the, uh, Fargo pilot, which I'd saw. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't love it, but I'm interested and I want to keep it going. I, I think yeah. what the concept that they've got going is pretty is pretty neat. I mean, it's it feels like Fargo the movie, but it's not Fargo the movie at all. But totally the same vibe. Some different actors portraying similar characters, right? But not the same characters because it takes place like ten years later or something. I wasn't too big on Martin Freeman at first, but so you watched it, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, it's exactly how I felt. Like right away, I'm like, "Ooh, this is this is weird." It's, it's him being a cartoon. It a bit. Yeah, but don't you you like after like ten or fifteen minutes, you start to kind of warm up to it. And yeah. He's pretty good. Yeah. Well, by the end of that episode, I was like, "Damn!" I was <laughs> really surprised because I think again about expectations. You walk in expecting not necessarily the exact carbon copy of Fargo, but the the way the murder plot unfolds, it was genuinely surprising, uh, and I sort of compared it to Simple Plan a little bit. Oh yeah, where how things progress and uh, and then the second episode. Um, uh, I haven't watched it. Okay, I'm, 
Yeah. Gonna watch it tonight. It's not bad. It's not bad. And I, I hear it gets better as it goes along, and I'm kind of glad that it's a 10-episode uh, arc of sorts. So yeah. I'm glad it's not going to go on and on. I like this new idea that TV is going through, yeah. whether it's American Horror Story or the amazingness that is True Detective. Mm-hmm. I love the 10-episode the miniseries Me arc. Me too. Me too. Really quickly in terms of movies, I haven't seen it yet, but Only Lovers Left Alive opens this weekend in Minneapolis. The Jim Jarmusch. Oh. Vampire movie. I am super excited. It's just, yeah. It. I've seen the first like ten minutes. Um, it stars Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston and Anton Yelchin and Mia Wasikowska. Yeah, I love her. John Hurt. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm super, and it looks really good. I can't wait to watch the rest of it in the theater. Nice. Yeah, I run hot and cold with Jim Jarmusch, but me too. I think. This one's going to rock your world, I think. I have a feeling. I have a good feeling about it, too. Yeah. I know. I've seen the first 10 minutes, and it's all about vampires and electric guitars. <laughs> uh, well, I like electric guitars a lot. I know. I'm kind of getting burnt out on vampires, but you never know. Some, you know, every now and then, like, you take a tired trope and put an interesting spin on it, and a guy like Jeremouche, I'm, I know yeah, he won't exactly. do it lazily. So You got it. All right, guys. I think we're ready to move on. Pedophilia time. Oh, boy. Maybe. Okay. (laughs) Patrick? Yeah. Let's move forward to the director of the episode. Who's that? It's Roman Polanski. You're right. All right. You win a cookie. Oh, good. Oh, good. I need one. Go and make a thriller, Roman. Make a creepy chiller, Roman. It will be great. Boys looking for his wife now, Roman. Hitchhiker with a knife now, Roman. Sailing away. Macbeth and Rosemary's baby. If Catherine Dunham kills her landlord and some creep, and some creep, then you know that it's by Roman Polanski. Roman Polanski is Roman Polanski. Cameo rolls to himself in his old work, slays on a nose. Escape the Holocaust and even worse. No surprise that his films be as dark as the hearse. Among the best in the best, you better know this. Pack a paint and his face across the phobic. His palmer wishes he could do that. If you've seen Repulsion, then you knew that. Listen when I tell you this, mister. Your pulse goes quicker and quicker. He's a brainiac who may cold. The sack and fills a cut much deeper than a blister. So now it's time, now it's time. Pat, Jim, and Andrew dive deeper into psyche. He's got my World War II in the 60s, 70s, and the 80s, too. Roman was an artist that was vested by few. Go and make a thriller, Roman. Make a creepy chiller, Roman. It will be great. Force looking for his wife now, Roman. Hitchhiker with a knife now, Roman. Sailing away. Macbeth and Rosemary's baby. If Catherine Dunham kills her landlord and some creep and some creep, then you know that it's by Roman. Paul Roman Pinancy is Roman. Paul So, I've had a very interesting relationship with Roman Polanski. I've seen quite a few of his movies, and I kind of admired them a little bit, more than actually loving them as a whole. Obviously, there's a couple of films that I think are clearly masterpieces, but I've had kind of like this push-and-pull feeling, like I, I just never fully embraced 
um, a few of his movies that a lot of other people seem to in the past. Um, but most recently, what really revitalized my interest in checking him out more uh, and revisiting some of his older films was Ghost Rider. I thought that was a really great thriller. Um, and then he followed another great up. Nicolas Cage performance. No, that's no, no. That this is the one with, <laughs> with Bond and. Uh, Oh my God! Obi Wan Kenobi. Yes, thanks. Yeah, we we have that problem on our podcast too. Every time I mention the movie, I have to say the Ghost Writer. Writer. Be right. very very clear about that. Yeah, and then I was kind of indifferent to his follow up, Carnage. Um, so yeah, it's it's a, he's an incredible filmmaker. I just sometimes his movies don't click with me. Uh, I think sometimes they're too leisurely paced, uh, but for the most part, there's usually a great payoff. Um, with something like The Tenant, I'm going to probably bring that up later, I was dumbfounded by it, but captivated at the same time. With Repulsion, I finally got that similar feeling I had when I first saw Rosemary's Baby. I admired nearly everything about it. Uh, it's a true psychological horror film that kind of lingers in my mind long after my first viewing. And as much as I love David Lynch, this is far more disturbing for me. Um, A really interesting exploration of the subconscious. Uh, I mean, it's it's crazy. Like, I feel like Polanski sort of scrutinizes what is frightening about being vulnerably human, Yet he doesn't need, feel the need to be sentimental about it or uh, judge his characters. And with, without something like Repulsion, I don't think there would have been movies like May or even Black Swan. It just sort of captures that isolation and the fri- more frightening aspects of repressed desire. And uh, I think cinematically there are things in here that uh, I haven't seen in you know, movies. I, I feel like just his choices really highlight her perspective, the, the the subjectivity of the lead character, the the ticking of a clock, the the voices of nuns playing catch, the dripping of a faucet, uh, close-ups of rotting food, and I, I don't know, like things, you know, things included in this movie just really affected me in a, a major way, like just the. Or the potatoes sprouting, the the, the meat rotting, uh, just and it's just a beautiful movie despite being really really disturbing. The sound design is great. Um, it struck a nerve with me big time, and um, it's right now it's kind of at the top of my list in terms of Polanski movies. It's an amazing piece of work. So we can move on. Yeah, all right, cool. So Chinatown, <laughs> go. No. Uh, is that my cue? I think Andrew should go. Go for it, man. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. Well, I have a my. I can talk about sort of my relationship with Polanski. Yes. Because um, I know you're a fan. For, I, okay. I am a huge fan. And when you guys talked about Polanski, I said I want to be on the Polanski podcast. Whenever that was a year and a half ago or whatever, we talked about it. Um, and then. Honestly, and I, and I do love Polanski, and I like a lot of his movies a lot. Um, but over the past week, I've come to realize that I'm a little bit like you, Jim, in that 
I don't really love everything that he's done. Um, I like I like his eye, and I like his a lot of his concepts and um, and and yes, yeah, some of some of his films I uh, are just absolutely electric, and I am, I think they are masterpieces. Agreed. Um, but then I, I started looking through his filmography, and I like I don't I don't like Bitter Moon at all. No. Um, Oliver Twist is eh, whatever. It's all right. Macbeth has got some moments, but it's yeah. anyway. I just come, I came to realize that like I would not put Polanski up there in my top five favorite directors, where I would have maybe just a few months ago. But analyzing him a little bit more and being honest with myself, I realized a lot of his stuff I'm not as big of a fan of um i don't know repulsion is kind of one of those maybe i'm gonna be the guy on this uh podcast i i find repulsion if there's some imagery in here that's terrific i agree with you that the way uh he gets into his into the main character's psyche is pretty great i feel like it could be a 25 minute film i find this movie to be extremely slow and it's just a fucking slog to get through especially the first 45 minutes her walking around town with the jazz score going on the stuff at work with the at the um the fingernails and the the toenails and stuff the spa or whatever that she works at her sister um most of the points that they're trying to get across uh, are gotten across really easily and he just lingers and spends way too much time in my opinion working on it now listening to you it, describe it talking about the rotting meat and the potatoes and the hands in the wall and the oh. the, the the clay wall and the walls breaking a lot of walls yeah. um like all of that stuff is great even her interaction with men i find to be pretty inter- interesting and and captivating but there's so much lingering on stuff that doesn't need to be lingered on. I feel like that. I just, this movie is super boring for me. Ouch. Yeah, I know. That's not what you wanted to hear from me, but, okay. uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, but you needed something. I, ex- you, you, you really need something exciting. Like say the ninth gate. Oh boy. Here we go. Uh, we'll get there, bud. We'll get there. Okay. okay. All right. Patrick. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Patrick. Um, well, surprise, surprise, it's a movie about PTSD, and Patrick is a fan of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you were, you, you, Jim, you referenced Black Swan in May, but all I could think of was Martha Marcy Marth- Marlene. Um, yeah, I can Which see we that. talked about on the last time I was on this show. Oh, yeah. Really? Yep. yep. I've grown to like it a lot more than I did when I first saw it. It's still one of my favorite movies ever, and I still think it's one of the best movies ever made. Um, and I think this movie is almost perfect. Uh, honestly, my only complaint is that it spends too much time on the guy, uh, that is trying to pick her up. Yeah. Uh, And in general, when she turns homicidal at the end, spoiler, that is way less interesting than just her nervous breakdown. But yeah, I can see that. Polanski has a uncanny ability to um, and create insane amount of anxiety uh, with just the frame. 
and just mise en scène. Um, I I can't quite put into words exactly what it is he does, other than just maybe he sort of makes the fl- frames ca- claustrophobic, um, and he sort of captures people in doorways um, and. Uh, you know, shoots them down hallways. So they're sort of confined to a very small part of the frame and they're kind of getting overwhelmed. Um, He does that a lot in Rosemary's baby. He does that all the time (laughs) in this movie. And this movie is just, I, it's so, and what's crazy about this movie is, you know, a lot of movies are just, you have to settle into them and you, they, you know, you slowly get on their wavelength and you're following this character and you having this sort of empathetic journey with this character um, and whereas this movie, I do honestly feel like I could put this movie on, um, the same way I can pick up naked lunch and read any part of that book. Um, uh, I feel like I can put any scene of this movie on and I would feel that, and I mean, unless it was a scene again, where it's the guy at, at the bar talking with his friends and I would feel that anxiety. I had to pause this movie in the middle cause it was kind of upsetting and I had to do chores anyway. So I paused this movie and I went and I like did the dishes and I did some other stuff. And I came back and I pressed play. And while I was doing the dishes, I was like listening to a podcast. I was thinking about all these other things. I was thinking about, oh, what am I going to have for dinner? All that. And then I came back and the second I hit play, it just instantly, I was just filled with anxiety again. Um, the, it's, it is until it gets a little crazier and a little more hallucinatory, the first 40 minutes I think are the best part of the film because they are a perfect – they are not a depiction of what it is actually like to have sort of a anxiety attack or a nervous breakdown. But they capture the feeling of an anxiety attack and a nervous breakdown perfectly. And I think, again, what this movie gets really well is – and something that Martha Marcy May Marlene gets really well is part of that um, is – and this can be – this part can be very, very frustrating uh, you know, as a viewer. Part of that is the inability to put into words what is happening to you and therefore the inability to ask for help. Um, yeah. And all throughout this movie – she needed to stop and tell someone I'm having a nervous breakdown. Your, your new boyfriend is reminding me of the man who molested me, um, which is implied very heavily to the point where I don't think it's ambiguous that that's what's going on. No, I, I think um, the final shot kind of hits. Well, that, home. that's the thing is that final shot is amazing. It's super creepy and it tells you everything that you needed to know. I feel like if I had known all of that stuff, I would have empathized or sympathized with her much more in that first half for for most of the that first half i'm just finding her incredibly annoying which is maybe the point right your society in general is finding her annoying and um incorrigible and why won't you talk why won't you tell me what's wrong yeah socially awkward yeah and so i kind of get that but i don't know as a viewer i kind of feel that way too and i don't want to feel that way i want to La- I want to latch on to her and, and sure. sip with that. And most of the time, I'm just like, fucking, why are you like this? It's so annoying. And then, yes, when you find out at the end, mostly, uh, that's when I've really figured it out. Okay, but, clearly. But 
that would have been nice to know. I, you're not introduced to this character at all in terms of who she is. It's just a girl, a meek, annoying girl who wanders the city and has men catcall towards her. And that's not so, enough. So, okay, so that's, that's – and that's fine. Um, number one, the last sh- – the final shot that you guys are talking about is a callback to a previous shot in the film. So well, they that, show that picture several times, but yeah, I never but no, but quite that, got it. But the way they show that picture is the same sort of a thing where the camera very slowly pans across the room um, right. after one of her freakouts, and it ends on that. And it one of the and one of the characters in you know one of the people in the pit photos clearly her because she's the only one with the blonde hair, and it you know it doesn't push all the way into her eye like it does at the end, but it does push in enough so you see the expression on her face. And to me, that was all I needed. Um, and I mean, obviously, uh, there's going to be uh, – I'm going to relate to this movie – You know, people are going to relate to the movie different based on their life experiences. Um, but I will just say knowing people very intimately who have had um, this trauma on them and, and seeing how they have dealt with it, um, this was the, – it's the sort of thing that I'm just tuned into and I – and I kind of knew that was what was happening before, <laughs> before it even showed the picture, um, just because of the way she shut down. And you know, that's me bringing knowledge um, outside of the film, so I can same, again same here. makes sense that this is a movie that would be frustrating for some people because she is an opaque character. She ha- you don't get inside her head. You don't get to find out what's wrong with her. Um, you don't find out even exactly why she's acting like this, what the reason she is, I mean, what, what started all this. But uh, to me, that wasn't important because what's clear from the start is she is kind of out of it um, and messed up from the very start. Uh, it's not like she suddenly you know, switches. Um, she's, uh, it's just that there's something about her sister's uh, boyfriend or whatever, the, uh, the, her lover, the guy that she's seeing who is married, um, that just sets her off. And then, and then I think – and I think that first sort of slow pan over to that photo is like 20 minutes in or so. And then the first time you see that, that is all I needed to piece it together. And then the rest of it, um, honestly – you know, if we're going to go back to talk about like under the skin or something, it is a very repetitive movie. I yeah. completely, I completely get what you're saying, Andrew, um, in that it could have been a 20 minute movie because it's not as if um, her condition. I mean, her condition certainly worsens, but it's not as if it radically changes throughout the film. Um, but to me, number one, it, it's such a perfect evocation of that kind of anxiety, um, especially. Towards the beginning, again, towards the end, when she gets a little murderous, it gets a little more like um, <laughs> it, it starts to feel a little more like men made it <laughs> than than uh, women who are, you know, like it, it feels a little more like, oh, this is a person going mad as opposed to this is what it feels like when I feel like I'm going mad, you know, um, but uh, but that to me is such it was such a perfect evocation of that and. It's such – like it's such – it's so tense and anxious the whole way through that like that sensation of watching the movie was thrilling enough that it didn't need to have any real plot developments from age because just the way he frames everything, just the way that 
the camera's very still and it's mostly closed frame and it just kind of crushes her um, when she's indoors. But every time she goes outdoors, there's very heavy percussive music playing Mm -hmm. um, and it's a handheld camera and it's shaky and it's that feeling of someone who is already unstable going out and being overwhelmed by the world. Um, You know, like I, that, that is a really great evocation of that. There's, and there's, little moments throughout that are insane. Like that, that, uh, those sort of roving band, uh, (laughs) that, that, uh, that's, is approaching the camera in one shot when she gets in the guy's car and leaves with them and the car drives off. And then for like 15 seconds too long, like after they've left the frame, the band just keeps coming closer and closer to the camera. Like that to me was, that was Polanski playing the spoons. Oh, that was Polanski playing the spoons. <laughs> yep. Yeah, because that, that those fucking spoons were fucking terrifying. And like to me, this movie is just pure terror. It's not a. I mean, technically, it has someone murdering people, but I wouldn't call it necessarily a horror film uh, in a traditional sense. But it is logical horror. Yeah, yeah. But it sure, sure. But it's but it is from start to finish super super scary and i mean i that's the same way i felt about martha marcy may marlene and it's because it's so intense and well she's um, tra- i mean in the same way martha marcy may marlene she's trapped in this world that, right. that she can't get out of and the way it, i mean she's she's literally trapped by the people around her but the way it's shot like how you mentioned the like the hallways or the bathroom or whatever it's not just like a long hallway shot the camera's really low so the the like the hallway walls are seem really high, or the yeah, bookshelves sure. seem like they're looming over us even more. Um, so I, again, that's kind of why I like I, when I say I like Polanski's eye. It's stuff like that 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 does help you sort of feel like you're there with the character um, more than you would otherwise with some oh, other director. Sure. And I and I think I mean. As far as movies in which someone slowly goes crazy, there, that's there's a lot of movies like that. This is one of the simpler, um, as far as plot goes. This is one of the simpler of those kinds of movies, but I think that works to its advantage because it allows it to just be a showcase for Polanski's filmmaking. Um, and whereas if it went in if there was more detail and she was more of a character and you got to know her better and you filled in the backstory, it would have definitely been more accessible and there certainly would have been more of eventful. Um, but it, I don't think it would have been nearly as effective um, because, but because one of the things that makes this movie so effective to me, um, I, uh, I suppose possibly the same way that uh, a movie could be super effective uh, so a movie like Under the Skin could be really effective. Someone else is that there's so little exposition. You really don't. It, it. She has a sister and she lives with her sister, and something is happening to her, and that's about all you're really filled in on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest is just very subtly implied, and that's why I love this movie so yeah. much. There's a little little air of mystery going on, but I think you know, it, it, for for a while, like just because of the weird angles or things like that. I was a little worried that like, oh, this is going to be, you know, kind of art house showiness, pretentious, just let's see how, you know, crazy I can get. But it it was all in service 
to externalize her madness and capture what it's like to live in that anxiety. And for me, like just the, the stylistic choices here <laughs> were like pretty accurate to creating almost like a, you know, a 90 minute panic attack, which, you know, I've experienced in like just that weird sort of otherworldly, I don't know where I am out of body kind of feeling this movie captured to where I'm like, I love this movie, but I can't, I don't know if I can watch it again anytime soon because of what it sort of evoked in me. And that, and that's the kind of stuff why, I mean, as visually striking and amazing looking as all the hands coming out of the hallway were like, that's more overtly kind of surreal stuff to me. Isn't as interesting. Um, if only because it's a little more like it's, it's less real, it's less real. And, and it's more likely something you'd see in another movie during a nightmare sequence or something. Yeah. Like Wes Craven probably did that. Whereas like the horror of, or I mean the opening of day of the dead, Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, but the horror of just that moment where she sort of wanders into the bathroom and she sees the bathtub has been crazy overflowing and it doesn't even really register to her. She's just, oh, I better turn the bathtub off. Okay, I have to go. Like she cannot even deal with little, like even the little things are just totally overwhelming to her, and that's just sort of what that kind of anxiety is. Where. Like you see that fucking rabbit rotting in the living room and she can't do anything about it because it's just she sees it and she doesn't know what she's supposed to do about it. And that sort of fear and that sort of panic can make the littlest things like that the most overwhelming um, things. And so like that kind of stuff is all great. And then the stuff where she cut off the rabbit's head and has it in her purse or whatever, like that kind of stuff is more – overtly shocking and surreal and i'm i let i respond less to that but um i think this movie is almost perfect it's really really incredible it's it's high praise for me to say that i like it better than pretty much any david lynch movie i've seen like as as a subjective nightmare um and you know obviously there's I can get all Freudian and say like, well, Freudian used to say that water represented madness and all this other stuff that I'm sure, you know, either happened unconsciously or not. But I think one of the more interesting things I came across too was that Polanski uh, did the Kubrick uh, approach that he did with um, uh, Shelley Duvall and decided to make the experience for Catherine Deneuve very difficult. Sort of terrorized her a lot, just for the sake of uh, a believable performance from her. Which is something I feel weird about, but at the same time, it it worked in the film's favor. It it feels unnecessary, almost, because she doesn't need to emote nearly as much as Shelley Duvall in The Shining. Yeah. Yeah. She's much more Deneuve is much more like in retreat. I feel like in this movie, right? <clears throat> that doesn't feel, seem necessary. <laughs> but, but I mean, I don't know. I've never directed a movie as good as Repulsion, so I, I guess I can't really say either way. But yeah, um, I mean, I it's different from David Lynch. I, I agree, they're both kind of nightmarish. But David Lynch's movies aren't nearly as grounded in this. This is clearly happening in the real world. You can see what parts are in her head and what parts aren't. Like you can kind of accurately guess yeah. 
that when she turns on the light switch and the wall opens up, that that's, uh, that that is a subjective sort of a representation of how she's feeling and not an actual event. Whereas David Lynch's movies are more internally, uh, Mm -hmm. coherent. Um, not that this film's incoherent, but you know what I mean? Like they're more, every, everything is part of the same world. Yeah. I'm definitely going to watch some of the extras on the, uh, Blu-ray that I picked up because I'm I'm very curious about you know his his methods and how he put things together and um, I I I certainly it's it's uh, I can understand a reaction you know like Andrew had because it's not pleasant and certainly spending time with a character like this can be challenging um, but even more than even more than that just like that is sort of the, that is sort of the obstacle of PTSD and making stories about that is that um, care, you know, people who suffer from PTSD, they aren't often able to put into words what is actually happening to them. They're unable to be subjective about it. I mean, there's a lot of people who weren't big fans of Upstream Color because they found that movie you know, too opaque. And same with Martha, Marcy, Mae, Marlene. Their people found that movie frustrating because the character you know, won't just – fucking tell anyone what's happening to her or where she's been. Um, And this movie, like it's completely understandable why you could watch a movie like this and just not get what the character's going through because the movie makes no attempt to make you uh, understand objectively what's happening to the character. All it makes you want, all it wants to do is make you understand subjectively what's happening Uh, to the character. So, I mean, I get I totally get people not being into this or Martha Marcy May Marlene or Upstream Color, but apparently that is just a topic that is catnip to me because those are all three of like my favorite movies. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So, I mean, God, just leaving that. that I, the moment that, it was over, I was like, oh, my God. I hope Patrick's okay. Yeah, I mean, if like this is one of those movies that's like you know if you're in a vulnerable place, it's just it'll affect you deeply. But I also know, based on your experiences and your 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 thoughts on a movie like Martha Marcy May Marlene, how it can affect you. And I I knew you were going to love the movie, but just in terms of because it it really got to me, and I I, I had that sense it could for you. Well, the thing about this movie, the thing about this is. Like I have a lot of connection to it because I know people who suffered from PTSD and I help people, you know, I've, I have helped people in the past Mm -hmm. through that sort of thing. But I myself don't have that problem. Um, I have, there's, (laughs) as far as my own, uh, my own mental problems go, I've certainly had moments like when she's sort of wandering around and she knows that the fucking rent check is there and she knows that she has to give that money or or they're going to lose the apartment but for whatever reason she can't make herself do it or she just sees that everything is fucking in tatters and that the bathtub is overflowing but she just sort of has to compartmentalize it and push it out of her mind and go to work um like that sort of thing I can relate to but uh unlike Martha Marcy May Marlene um it's not really that existential of a movie where because what's happening for her has a very clear cause, um, and that cause isn't just that she's a human being. Whereas Martha Marcy May Marlene made me 
sort of question what I thought about identity, <laughs> which is uh, yeah. why that movie fucked me up so much. Whereas this movie I just found, you know, fascinating. And obviously this is super anxious and I was squirming the whole time, but it's, it wasn't personally upsetting in yeah. the way that that movie was. Upstream color is what made me question identity. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's a good, that's a good one too. And I don't think Andrew likes that one either. Eh, not mm. Really? I, I, I totally would be willing to rewatch it. But no, yeah. I wasn't. I, in fact, most of it I don't remember. Sure. I mean, that's – and again, I already described why that, that makes sense to me. Yeah. It, the fact that you found Repulsion boring completely understood now. For sure. Let me just say too when I said I, I don't remember much of um, uh, Upstream Color, a, another bit of my sort of relationship with Polanski is it's we, outside of like the pianist – Outside of the pianist, actually, I, like I feel like I forget his movies right away. I've seen Chinatown. This was the fourth time I've watched Chinatown, and every time I go back to Chinatown, I f- I've forgotten everything. Like uh, I, I, I'm with you on that. Actually. It's it's really weird, and I and I feel like that with a lot of his movies. And I've um, Frantic's another one. Yeah, and I know. And here's the weird thing: I know I love Frantic, Death and the Maiden. I know I love it, and I know I've seen it like three or four times. And outside of a couple major uh, just visual things that are implanted in my head, I don't remember much of it. It's uh, it's such a weird phenomenon, especially with Chinatown. I it, there's no reason why I shouldn't remember that movie. It's not super convoluted. It's not. I have a suggestion. Um, yes. Uh, I, I, the, one of the weird things about Chinatown is it kind of has this – it's kind of a weird uh, storytelling magic trick where it has the most simple kind of storytelling approach, which yes. is follow one character – this happened. This scene happens. Therefore, this scene happens. Therefore, this scene happens. Every scene leads into itself naturally. Um, you're never lost while you're watching it, but the actual thing that he's investigating, the actual plot, the actual conspiracy and all of the angles and all of the motivations, those are incredibly complicated. And it's, it's no surprise to me that this is yeah. frequently called one of the greatest screenplays of all time because the fact that they were able to choke down this, this level of mystery with all of these ins and outs and all these angles and all these double crosses and motivations and secrets where but while you're actually watching it you almost are never confused you're almost always right on it it's 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 a miracle and it doesn't surprise me that with outside of the context of how the story is told the details of the story could be forgotten it sort of gives the illusion of being more on a macro level but it really is i think more about just the two characters. Um, yeah. And I think that's kind of an interesting perspective on it. Like, I hadn't thought of it that way. But, like, but in the moment while I'm watching it, my brain is so attuned to, like, okay, I got to keep up with that and I got to remember that. I got to remember that because clearly this is all going to lead to some big conspiracy and something has to do with the water system. And, like, as I'm watching it, I, I'm able to follow it, but I'm expecting some 
big reveal. And there is kind of a big reveal, obviously. <laughs> I would say. <laughs> obviously. But it, more in terms of, like, all the politics going on within that town. You know? Like, I, I really, really love it. And I think the more I watch it, the more I'm in, really engaged with it. Um, I do have kind of like a De Palma, like how you had with Blowout, Patrick. I kind of had a, a reaction that made me, you know, give it like maybe a half star less than I normally would. And what's that? I I was surprised. I mean, I understand that he has to sort of go and confront the uh, the culprit, you know, um, Faye Dunaway's Faye Dunaway's father. I just think that, like, in the midst of all that going on, I felt like he made kind of a blunder by, you know, going to the the Mulray house instead of making sure they got away, that Faye Dunaway and her daughter got away. Like, if I was him, I would have gone with Burt Young and just to make sure they got away, got on the train safely, and then go to confront the evil father. It, it just seemed like... He didn't know the father would be there. Okay, yeah. Wait, no, no. Did he arrange the meeting with the father? Or... I thought he did. Okay, yeah. maybe. It was just like a question, you know, and I, I don't usually harp on plot points, especially when everything else is so damn good about this movie, but it was just something I was like, oh, man, I... I I think as a character, I thought he was smarter than that. But just the way things pan out, I know for a fact that Polanski originally, um, I think he was either told by the studio or something or something along those lines, or the original screenplay had a happy ending. But yeah, what, what he worked. He he's not credited, but he worked a lot with Robert Town right. on the screenplay. Yeah, uh, but also speaking of that. Uh, one of the interesting things about Polanski is that a, uh, a director of his stature normally um, who makes the kind of films he makes, um, which are more genre um, and they're and they are sort of span the course of decades. Um, they usually don't write their own material, you know, like Francis Ford Coppola didn't write all of his films, uh, you know, um, you know, Steven Spielberg didn't write all of his films. Polanski has has a co-writing credit on almost all of his movies. Hmm. I didn't realize that. You all right, I Jim? guess I didn't either. Yeah. But yeah, you're yeah. right, he does. Yeah, I mean, like he co the fact that he co-wrote The Pianist and he co-wrote Repulsion, like that's a crazy <laughs> That's a that's a pretty crazy gap. But so to me, Chinatown is about him getting in over his head, um, right. and part of part of what makes that movie so amazing is that he starts off super capable. He is literally the smartest guy in the room for the first like thirty minutes or so, um, but slowly and slowly he just gets more and more invested, and he he just needs to help this woman, and he. He need and he needs to set things right, and it's just Chinatown. It's what happened to him in Chinatown all over again. Um, hence the title. Um, yeah, he's haunted by the mistake he made with another woman. He gets he gets more dangerous. He gets sloppier. And honestly, if he's smarter than that, then he should have just not gotten involved to begin with. 
his whole idea of his motivation being clearing his name or whatever, like that's not an issue. <laughs> you know, the suit sure. was going to be the suit was going to be dropped. He was uh, going to get a settlement like that. That's nothing. The whole reason he's doing it in the first place is because he's not smart enough to just stop. He needs to get to the truth. And that's what does him in. Um, and that's why he sort of fucks up. And that's why I love about this movie is that you think it's going to go one way where it goes right to the top and the mayor is the one who is actually behind the whole thing and he's right. going to have to take down the whole polit- political community but really it's instead of being sort of like above his pay grade politically the culprit ends up being it, it ends up being like just above his head morally where suddenly he d- he finds himself in a world of morality that he can't deal with where <laughs> the woman he loved it has a had an ongoing incestuous relationship with her father and like there are just levels uh of of immorality and levels of um sort of uh, depravity and stuff that he wasn't prepared for and it, the audience isn't prepared for because it's not where you think the movie's going and it mm-hmm. but it but it is a more satisfying ending for a for a character driven film I feel than yeah, if I mean, it, it was. It, 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 it totally changes our perception of who he is right. throughout the thing. Like, I feel like he, in for the, a good chunk of the movie, you feel like here's a guy who's totally out for himself, just wants to make a buck, doesn't care kind of who he stomps on to get there, and he's kind of an asshole to everybody. But then he kind of just becomes an idealist and wants to fight for the city and <laughs> becomes like a, almost like a spokesman for all the people that don't know what's going on. I'm the guy that's going to get to the bottom of this. It's not right what's going on here. It's not right what happened to this woman. And it's not right what's happening to San Francisco. I'm going to be the guy to fix everything. And I, I don't know. I, I just feel like the transformation. I don't know if it's a transformation. I think it's just uh, an aspect of the character that we're not privy to from the outset that we slowly a, dig into. Yeah. It's, the, it's Rick from Casablanca. It's it, it it's an the, inversion of that. I think it's an inversion of that because I don't think he actually wants to be a crusader for the city. I think it's a mixture of lust and pride um, that does him in. I think it, I and I think one leads him to the other. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think I think it's interesting how he inverts the film noir um, archetypes. With, you know, like him being sort of suave and debonair and kind of in control and, like Andrew said, just kind of out for himself. And and then also Faye, Den- Faye Dunaway probably could have played your typical sort of femme fatale manipulator role. But then that's inverted, obviously, with the reveal. So I think it's interesting, like, how he plays with our expectations and changes these characters in a way that's not manipulative at all. It just feels right. Yeah, with the way the more information that comes to yeah. us, the, you just you know, make sense the way the characters sort of evolve. Mm-hmm. So, but so on that on the grand scale of the story, it's super satisfying that character arc um, and that progression and that sort of tonal slide from a fun mystery to a darker place, um, sort of a, a darker character driven drama. But also, in addition to that. Every individual scene in this movie is terrific. 
every every clue, every trick he does when he's putting the cl- when he's putting the stopwatches down um, under the car's wheels, like I love all of his. Oh, yeah. I love how he's got a full glove compartment full of stopwatches just for yeah. this scenario. It's, it's <laughs> such a great thing. Oh my god, that that glove compartment opening, you see full stopwatch, you're like, what is going? And then, you know, two minutes later, oh, of course, you see the broken stopwatches. That's such a wonderful moment. And everything he does is full of wonderful moments. And that chase in the orange grove. And, like, this movie is just, from a moment to moment, it's really, really exciting and fun. And it's just as entertaining as any, you know, mainstream Hollywood movie that's ever, you know, come out. But that it's so beautifully shot and it's so uh and it has that dark side to it tonally um and that it becomes almost again like a magic trick under your nose it becomes a character driven story without you realizing it um cuz you think he's just going to be like a lot of these kind of characters in film noirs where he's just sort of a cipher and he's just sort of leading the audience through the story. And the fun part is meeting all these characters and the stories and the twists and turns, but it it becomes super personal to him um, in ways I think he doesn't quite understand until it's too late. Um, Like, I mean, towards the end of the movie, he's given a clear choice. You can either do the right thing as far as the eyes of the law, or you can save this woman who's been lying to you every step of the way. Hmm. And he chooses to save her. Uh, just like to me, that is such a fatal flaw, and it's such a great telling of uh, who his, you know, who he, where he is at that point uh, emotionally. That the idea that he made a tactical blunder as far as you know, uh, making sure she got out of the country, that to me doesn't mean anything because that is such a drop in the bucket compared to just the bigger flaw of still being on this case in the first place. He's not getting paid. At all. No one's paying him to be on that case. He's not clearing his name. He I, – I mean I think to a certain extent he does start to care about people. But I don't, I don't think he's doing it purely as a crusader because when he describes his time as a police officer in Chinatown, the reason that he got in too deep in the first place was he the, – the, and you don't get the whole story but he says – you know, he tried to save a woman, and yeah. and then he wound up being the cause of her death. Right. Whatever. Yeah. Exactly. So, like, I think he gets motivated to do the right things, <laughs> only for the wrong reasons. Um, and I think that always leads to his downfall. It's almost like the the David Mamet thing, where once you step out of your station and you start to give a shit and you start to Spartan. Yeah, or all David Mamet movies, well, yeah, Hom- Homicide and Homicide House of Cards and all that. Yeah, well, House, I mean, of, like, House when, of Games. Yeah, House I think, of Cards uh, is the show. John Huston at one point in this movie says, "Like politicians and ugly buildings and whores all get respectable if they last long enough." And I feel like, you know, Polanski's perception of humanity definitely isn't pretty, but I do like how it is like this kind of, you know, for for that time, a modern pastiche of that classic 30s gumshoe thriller where you do have these expectations of it being a take on that. Where it goes, it's it's totally Polanski in terms of it being something deeper, something a little bit more psychological and, like you said, a character study. 
I, I think that it just benefits from how amazing all the pieces come together in this movie, from the screenplay to the acting, and of course, I just think he's got a control behind the camera that very few filmmakers around that time had, and that's why he's considered one of our greats, but... I And so such different like this movie looks so different than yeah. so many of his other movies could, like could have been in black and white you know you, you you think of i don't know like a like a director you know like alfonso Caron or something and you know his movies are very visually striking and he makes beautiful films but it's easy but he has the one thing that he does he likes the long takes that sort of immerse you in an environment whereas polanski has the thing he does as far as sort of making claustrophobic frames where characters get smaller and smaller and are tightened and stuff. But he also can do this. He can also do a movie like this that is shot more classically. Um, and it doesn't have, it doesn't have a surreal moment like, like the nightmare sequences in repulsion or Rosemary's baby or Macbeth. It doesn't have that, uh, tightening aspect where it's just trying to make you feel anxiety. It's, Short, sort of shot more classically, and the fact that he can do that as well is really impressive because it's not like if you look at most of Polanski's filmography, Chinatown is not the kind of movie you would think. Oh yeah, that's a no brainer. He knocked that out of the park. The same way that say the Ghost Rider is. Mm-hmm. No, that's totally true. So you're still a fan of this one, Andrew? I take it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time. It's- Kind of what's refreshing, too, about not remembering stuff is that, oh, yeah, this is what I like about this movie. This is what I love. And I, I don't know. I'm not a, like a huge Jack, um, Jack Nicholson guy, but um, this is I think this is one of my favorite roles by him. I mean, um, it's partly it's the dialogue, but it's the part partly the way he carries himself. And you can tell he fucking loves playing this character. Yeah. Um, I think he directed the sequel. I, I'm sure that I don't know if either. I have never seen it. I don't know if you guys have, but I think he directed the the two Jakes or whatever is the sequel. Um, I've heard I, it was, unfairly and I've heard it's not very actually that it's like what unfairly sort of dismissed as. I mean, obviously, it's it's not going to be as good, but. I, I heard from some people that it's... Not, I mean, I know Ebert himself, too, was a big fan of it. I'm definitely interested. I feel like he just wanted to play the character again sure. so bad that nobody else is going to direct it. Fuck it. I'm going to direct it. And it might have it, been one of his first director. Well, Robert Town wrote it, too. According, um, to, the, according to IMDb, uh, it was part of a planned trilogy um, oh, wow. where they would be taking on different parts of corruption uh, in different... Uh, decades in LA hmm. where the first one would be about water. I forget what the two Jake's plot is about, but it's about something else. And then parts of the third one that never got made. Uh, one of the reasons it never got made was because parts of that script were recycled for who framed Roger rabbit. <laughs> what? That's weird. Where that one was going to be about a uh, clover leaf and like a freeway or whatever. Oh, freeway. And like the and public transportation being dismantled. Holy shit. Ro- Richard Farnsworth, Reuben Blades, Eli Wallach, Madeline Stowe, Harvey Keitel. I'm super interested mm. in the two Jakes now. That's eh, nice it's, it's directed by Jack Nicholson. Have you seen, what was the other movie he directed? Drive, he said. And Going South. No. Yeah. 
Oh, I take man. it back. This is the last movie he directed in 1990. Yeah. He hasn't done anything since. Hmm. He's not a great director. That's too bad. I mean, I love it when like actors that are just, yeah. you know, so-so, Mel Gibson. Well, okay, De Niro's pretty great. But when they direct stuff, it's like really outstanding work. That's too bad that Nicholson couldn't carry over. Ben Affleck. Also, or especially ben Affleck. Can- Considering back like in the era, sort of that new Hollywood era, he was doing everything. He was writing screenplays. He was producing movies. You know, he wasn't only an actor until towards the end of the 70s. Um, I mean, he wrote he wrote the monkeys movie Head. He was one of the writers on Head. (laughs) Apparently, the way they wrote Head was it was him, Bob Rafelson, and I can't remember the other guy's name, but they would just smoke pot. And then they would just come up with an idea for that day, and then they'd, oh. they'd go shoot. <laughs> so, no, I know. I know you're shocked, Jim. Marijuana. Marijuana was consumed. Oh, my God. Right. I don't know if I can watch it. Yeah. No, you shouldn't. It's, it's a bad influence. I had to turn it, off Days and Confused halfway through. It makes, you, uh, it makes you abuse Coke machines in the middle of the desert. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a you, gateway, Jim. Jim, Jim you, really need, you really need to send me that BBS box set again. You oh, sent shit. me back that... I still haven't set. watched that. I really want to see that. Yeah. Head. My bad. My bad. I want to watch Head again so bad. I was reading someone's review of Head on Letterboxd, and it made me want to rewatch it so bad. Plus, it's been forever since I've seen Last Picture Show. All right. I'll give you Head, Patrick. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for giving me Head. You're welcome. So, uh, I, it, yeah. la- uh, Go ahead. Sorry. No, that's okay. I was just going to say if we're ready to move on to a couple oh, more. I- Last thing, I mean, sure. I wouldn't be me if I didn't mention costume design in, in Chinatown. Those suits that he's got on. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so much fun to watch him in every scene just to see what fucking suit he's going to have on next. Um, I, I love that. Oh, and. Are you a costume guy? Oh, like, I love. I'm yeah? super into costume design. I don't That's know much about like the like technical stuff behind it or who's behind all of it but i look at costumes all the time yeah 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 yeah, yeah. it's interesting um i do like his snoots snoots i like his suits (laughs) i like his snoot he has a he has a long nose i like his snoot when it got cut right up the middle isn't a snoot a character and or a creature in lady in the water i i think it it might be be. a snoot it also sounds like a dr seuss character yeah it's also what pigs have. By the way, that that, <laughs> that nose cutting scene is pretty. I mean, besides the fact that it's Polanski that does the cutting, um, I don't know what it is about that quick sequence, but it's a really well done gore shot. I feel like like all of Polanski's earlier stuff, like when you see the blood and stuff, it's either in black and white, so it just doesn't matter what it is, or it's. I don't know, it's paint or ketchup or something. And I don't know, the way this one just spurts so realistically and looks like real blood. And I know it's kind of a superficial thing to mention, but even by today's standards, if you're like a gore hound, like that's a really nice quick little cut and a little bit of a blood spurt. It's not outlandish. Yeah, I think think that's... Neat. One of his strengths is, uh, is like the way he shoots that is it's both what makes it look painful isn't that you see the nostrils splayed open and you see the inside of it and it's inside out or whatever. It's just that it 
it's the thought. It's the same way that you don't see in repulsion. You don't see the bodies in the bathtub. You mm-hmm. just you you just see the guy reacting. He he knows the power of the of suggestion, but you see enough to see what looks like a very real straight straight razor going inside of Jack Nicholson's nostril and a movement happening. And apparently like the rig they set up, it was actually kind of dangerous and it had to be done the right way. And that's it why we, be, because the camera never cuts or there isn't any shaky cam or any weird, somebody hiding the frame or whatever. It's so yeah. fast. And so yeah. and apparently that, really that's clear. why, that's why Polanski was the one doing it. Cause he just had to make sure that it was done right. Um, so they, and apparently the way it was done – again, this is all from IMDb trivia, but uh, they, they got so tired of explaining um, how they did it. Was so Eventually, when in interviews, when they were asked, they just said, oh, no, we just actually cut his nose. <laughs> <laughs> and people, people totally bought it because it works. There's something about Polanski that's really interesting. Um, if we're going to move on uh, you know, and talk about his other films, uh, I was thinking about this while watching The Pianist. Where the pianist is just some of the most horrific things that have ever happened in history happening for mm. two, two and a half hours. But it's not a particularly gory movie. Um, but it doesn't shy away from gore either. And there's something about Polanski's violence that is matter of fact that makes it more horrifying. Yeah, like, totally. When you see when you the when the uh, when the uh, the uh, Jews are lined up on the on the street and he's marching down one by one and firing into their heads, um, and he runs out of bullets right before he gets to the last one. Very obviously, very calculated. Um, he being the Nazi, by the way, in case you were confused about <laughs> what side uh, what what side Polanski takes in in World War Two, um, he stops and he. You know, he puts in a new clip in his in his Luger, and he fires into the guy's head. You see the, you know, the bullet hole, and then there's that one second delay that happens when you get cut, or you know, and then the blood comes out, and it's, mm-hmm. and there's something about the tone of it, which is just completely. The tone is more brutal than the actual on-screen violence, but it's also not not showing it. It's not like pointedly pulling the camera away every time yeah. something gr- horrific is going to happen. It just is matter of cap- capturing it. And one of the – like I don't think The Pianist is necessarily a very interesting movie because it's very much a narrative. Survival story of sorts. Right. It's, it, it is just sort of a narrative of suffering. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of great scenes in it and there's a lot of moments where you're biting your nails and you're like, oh, shit. Oh, he's going to get it. Oh, and like you're excited. Like it's a good movie. I really, really enjoyed The Pianist. But it's not the most interesting movie and it's certainly not the most Polanski movie other than, of course, it's the his, fact it's that – It's the most personal movie. and It's the one he said he'd take to his grave. Sure. And I think most personal can mean different things. Is it the movie that most uh, relates to his own life? Yeah. It's for sure. He – you know he he fled Poland in you know World War Two. He's he saw so much of it. Uh, you know he saw so much of the horror of the Nazis. But um, to me, Poli as an artist, uh, not Poland, Poli Polanski as an artist really only shines in sort of the way he depicts Adrian Brody watching the horror happen. Where every time you mm-hmm. see something like that happening, it's a long shot because it's from his view. So you see it through a window. You see it from a building across the street. It's always a long shot. 
Um, and it's always just – it almost feels a more like that uh, – more of the ways that he'll shoot through an apartment and capture someone in a doorway, you know, um, and it makes it feel more claustrophobic. He's like good at that, let me tell you. The Shooting scene, in apartments. <laughs> that scene in The Pianist – um, if you if you were in the room with the camera, or if the camera was in the room with the Nazis when they throw the guy who's in the wheelchair, they throw him over the balcony. If you were in the room, or a little bit closer to it, it would not have the same effect as not at all. seeing it from across the road. No, because it's all one shot. It's like the no, it's like the nose cutting. It's you see them yeah. wheel them out to the balcony. You see him tip him over and. I mean, at least my first reaction was, oh, they're going to threaten him. They're threatening him. They're hoisting him over the back. But no, they just toss him right over. Yeah. And it's all one fluid motion. And there is, it could have been spectacularly gruesome. It could have, if they shot it, if he shot it a different way, he could have made it more gory. He could have made the expression on the man's face as he fell, you know, the focus of it. But the fact that he pulls it back highlights the horror because. It's so it makes it feel more commonplace, like you were watching someone <laughs> throw like this dirty. Is just what happens? Yeah. yeah, you're like watching someone throw anything out a window, like just dirty water or something out a window. Um, and us, and it, it is just what happens because it's what happens again and again and again throughout the movie. Um, it's certainly not one of my favorite Polanski movies because again, it it is not a very narratively interesting movie, and it doesn't feel as super. It doesn't feel Original. as essential essentially him as yeah it's not as original not that not that it isn't important sure that movies like this are continually made and seen and people don't forget the horrors of the nazis in world war ii like it's not like ah we already made a holocaust movie forget it like no these movies are it's it's good like it's worthy to make a movie like that just so you know just so it's remembered and um, and it stays alive, and there's something about cinema that can make it stay alive better than a history book. Um, mm-hmm. But I yeah, it's not one of my favorite. I remember not, really liking it, but I, I didn't get a chance to rewatch it. It's not one of my favorites, but it's definitely a very good movie. I like. You know what else I like about uh, the pianist? I like the title cards, which is a weird thing to say. But whenever the date, whenever they're telling, you know, updating you on what point in the war it is and they're you know it's you know there a title card will come up and it'll be like may 29th 1941 but instead of being sort of a small thing like almost like a subtitle on the bottom of the screen it's a big full full screen filling you know may 20 29th 1941 and it just pops right on there and even in the end when they do this sort of epilogue with the with the cards sort of saying what happened to him afterwards like even that is just boom, a big card appears, uh, interrupts you know the film, and then as soon as you can even read it, it disappears again. It's not sort of the thing where slowly it fades, and then it fades to the next title card, and then it fades to the guy as he's smiling, and then there's a freeze frame and all that. Like, there's something about I like that as well in the pianist. I love the the thing I like about the pianist mostly is all of the familial interactions that go on mostly in the first half of the movie so i mean yeah you're right the the pianist isn't all that interesting in terms of stuff we don't know like we know all this but 
it's the small things. We're cutting up the, the candy. They buy one piece of candy oh. with all the money he has left, and he cuts it up into five or six pieces and doles it out. Or, or them discussing about how to hide the money in their apartment. Or the slow... Like most World War II movies or um, Holocaust movies like this uh, happen in the midst of it. Like we already know everything, whereas this is the very beginning. Well, now Jews can't go into the diners. Well, now Jews have to wear this. Well, now Jews have to cross the bridge at a certain time. Like slowly things just get worse and worse. Where I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen every movie ever made, clearly, but it seems to me that like Diary of Anne Frank or Schindler's List, you're thrust into the thing in the, in the, in the midst of where everything is already at its worst Whereas this one, it's slowly happening and nobody's doing anything about it. Like that's sort of the interesting history lesson, I think, that we get from The Pianist that other movies don't dive into. It's all the stuff leading up to the, the ghettos and the, the gas chambers and everything. Um, watching the families slowly get dissected and pulled apart. Um, that's the most horrific thing of all. Uh, yeah. That's what I really like about the pianist, and that's Have the you, full hour. Sure. Have you seen a Soldier of Orange? Mm-mm. So that's a Paul Verhoeven no. movie about the occupation of the Netherlands, um, and it's not the pianist because none of the ca- main characters, maybe one of the main characters, is a Jew. But it's not about that. It's sort of about the. It's sort of about the Dutch resistance. Um, and so like that, but that one of the most fascinating things about that movie is you sort of see the Netherlands before the Nazi invasion and after and during, and you see a lot of people in the Netherlands, unlike Poland, uh, a lot of people in the Netherlands sort of just side with the Nazis and they cheer for them, you know, uh, and you see like sort of anti-Semitic sentiments shared before the invasion and everything, and it makes it a lot sort of messier. But that sort of transition from the transition from we're a free country, they're bombing us. We just we were walking down a country road and we saw a troop, a battalion of Nazi soldiers. Okay, now the queen has fled. Okay, now they're occupying us. Like that. That's one of my favorite things about that movie. I would suggest, yeah, Soldier of Orange, really good. Okay, um, I need to bring this up because it's almost. Worth doing a second Polanski episode in the future. Again, promise that we probably can't make, really. But um, You can make it, you just can't fulfill it. Yeah, yeah. Because okay. The Tenant is a movie... First of all, it might be the first time in Director's Club history that I'm begging our listeners, if you've seen this movie, send me an email. Because... <laughs> It's a movie where tone is kind of its worst enemy, and I found it fascinating, but I was fighting with it. Like, there's a scene involving a scream that scared the shit out of me, but then there's, you know, the main character, played by Polanski himself, stepping in dog poop! Like, it's this weird mishmash of dark comedy and psychological horror that just feels like it's at war with itself. But, again, he's playing with the idea of identity going awry, when, especially when you're living alone, kind of isolated. Again, I, 
I think he made three apartment movies, if I'm not mistaken. And this is, I think, the last of them. Um, what are the others? Rosemary's Baby and Repulsion. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, you know, okay, can I say something? I know, I can know, I, I say know, something I real quick? You, you, don't, you don't like that. Sorry. I don't like people just selecting three movies I out of a director's him, filmography. I, think I don't like when they... I don't like when directors do it either. It's fucking dumb. Oh, this is my apocalypse trilogy. Really? Really, Lars von Trier? Or is this just a thing you like to do? Oh, there's another movie in your filmography that would kind of fit in there. So is it a quadrilogy? What is it? Oh, I hate that so much. I hate trilogies are a thing and that everyone tries to divide. Oh, well, this movie, it's the counterpoint to that movie. And finally, mm. the, you know, ah, bums me out. Okay. But I really want you to see this at some point because I'm I, – I'm d- <sighs> It's one of those where I was like, I, I don't know what I really think of it. It's another almost like enemy where I have to watch it again. And there's a lot going on in terms of emasculation. And I like the idea of this being kind of a meta-commentary on Polanski's latter years because there's a lot involving social norms and persecution. Like, I think one of the reoccurring images I've seen in at least three of his movies is, like, you see the the character's point of view and a bunch of people pointing down at the camera, like, almost in judgment from a... Oh, man. That... That scene in Macbeth is fucking brutal. <laughs> I bet. When Macbeth is beheaded and everyone and his head's being tossed around and everyone is pointing and laughing at his head. Jesus Christ. But I couldn't I figure out if this movie was going for laughs or if it was just a strange movie that I found interesting. Like I want to read essays on it <laughs> because I'm curious to see what other people's interpretations are. And if that's, anybody has seen it, just just send me an email because I'm dying to know your thoughts. It's well, really fascinating. I, it's interesting because I think the tenant is pretty goofy. Yeah, in in a lot part. of ways. I mean, yeah, I, there's definitely a psychological thriller aspect to it, and a lot of it, like any time where he's looking across again just like in the pianist and in repulsion um and in frantic and in bitter mood shit ton of movies he does this you're right the ninth gate but he's looking across through a window he's looking across an alleyway into the where the bathroom is and the people standing there that shit's creepy as hell yeah uh, and then there's a scene that i won't give away where he goes into the bathroom um and looks around that's also creepy there's a lot um, of creepy things throughout the movie. Yeah, but it's it's so it's surrounded by such goofiness that I, it's hard to. Where I mean, it goes at the ending. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if anybody doesn't know, so it's a guy who takes up tenancy in this um, in this apartment and slowly um, the the previous tenant tried to commit suicide or committed suicide by throwing herself out the window. And he sort of, for various reasons, starts to sort of become mad and thinks that maybe other people are trying to convince him to commit suicide. Um, and, I mean, there's more to it than that, and you're, I just don't want to get into it. It's, yeah. it's better off if you go and clean. But I don't know, like all the makeup and just his buddies that are always coming over and <laughs> fucking around with them and yeah. the way they treat people is... It's all kind of 
funny in a dark way. It's I mean, sure. it's like a dark comedy, I think. Um, I was get, like, I was hoping it would kind of capture the after hours feeling of, you know, an overcrowded city living. I mean, obviously, in after hours, he's traveling around. But here it's about, like, you know, city life and living in this a building becomes suffocating. And, like, his neighbors are constantly complaining I think a lot of people who've lived in apartment buildings probably have come across crazy neighbors and like there's things about it that I wanted to embrace but I felt like the payoff was just I don't know him taking a piss like he just decided to I don't know if if there's a message here it got kind of muddled for me like I don't know what his intent was with where it went and then the very final shot sort of echoes something that happens earlier including the moment that made me freak out so it's just weird it's a weird movie that i want to love but i'm more like confused kind of baffled by it yeah Yeah. but i don't mean that in a bad way either so i it's something i'm willing to revisit yeah i think it's it's, it's definitely sort of a i don't know what the word is but it's it's something different in um, Polanski's filmography than everything else. In some ways, in some ways, it's very much. Is he is he the main character in any other film ever? I don't think so. I mean, I the know wood, he shows up in tons of stuff, but like he's the main guy in this movie the whole time. Like, he's on screen ninety five percent of the time, and I don't think. I don't know. I don't think that's. I don't. I think that's his only one. I could be wrong, but um, and he's not bad actually. I think he's pretty good in in this role. But that's partly what um, contributes, I think, a little bit to the goofy surrealism of the movie. Not surrealism, but un unrealism. I guess would maybe be a little bit better way of putting it. It's just it's kind of an interesting premonition too. With, like, society hating him. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of weird to watch now in retrospect. And it's weird because in the movie, he's such, like, a likable guy. He's so, <laughs> he's so upstanding and serious, and but not totally, like, humorless. He's just kind of a guy that's polite, and all of a sudden, everybody just takes advantage of him and stomps on him and transforms him into something that... Uh, he doesn't want to be, and we certainly don't want to see. I'd like to see this remade with like Larry David. <laughs> like, a, just well, there a, you go. A curb your enthusiasm version of this story. Okay, let's let's do this, guys. Let's let's wrap it up with a couple movies, including one that one of us loves and one of us hates. That is right. You love it, Jim. Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! It's not true. I think it's okay. I don't think it's... Uh, pirates? Are we talking about pirates? No. Walter Matha? Oh, mm-hmm. no. No. Is I certainly that, like the setup. I was hoping for more. Can I, can, uh, I ask, can I ask about pirates? Yeah. Just, I've not just, seen it. Oh, okay. Does Walter Matha play a pirate? Uh, I have not seen. It's one of the very few. But yes, I believe Walter Matthau plays a pirate. Where are the f- okay? Well, so I got to change my top three. That's I haven't seen it either. But that clearly Walter yep, Matthau Walter Matthau, Captain Thomas Bartholomew <laughs> Red. <laughs> if only what Jack Lemon was in it. 
Who would cast Walter Matthau as a pirate? What is it? A pirate from the South Side? That's like Harvey Keitel. That's like that's like Harvey Keitel in in Last Temptation of Christ. Right. I don't know. Pirates is a tricky one to come by. (laughs) I can't find it on DVD, or if you can, it's like a hundred dollars to buy. I I assume there's probably some torrents or something out there, but it's really hard to find. Well, it's because it's so good. So good. Sure. All right. All right. All right. Let's let's talk. Can I can I go ahead and just say my piece about the Ninth Gate? Yeah. I think you should. Okay. I don't think it's like the worst movie ever made. It's not like inept technically. It's not no. the worst acted movie ever. It's not the worst anything ever. It's not. You know, The Room. It's not Raising Cain. Uh, <laughs> you always do that. Raising Cain is one of the worst movies ever. No, it's fun. It's one of the worst movies ever. Um, but mm-hmm. one of the, the reason I hate, hate, hated The Ninth Gate was because, number one, it's super fucking long. Um, and number two, it's super boring. Um, and number three... It wastes a good premise um, because I, I love with that. I love the idea of a, a thriller. Like I love the idea of something satanic being found in books and being yeah. awakened and 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 sort of this idea that there's sort of been a secret cult this whole time and all that. Um, oh. And the idea of ancient books, you know, like Just holding you mysteries. This, and, I'm getting a boner. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but what a movie like this doesn't need is everyone involved being super bored, including Johnny Depp not giving a fuck. I cannot imagine a less engaged Johnny Depp. I can't imagine a less engaged – like even when he was single, he was more engaged than this. Oh. <laughs> that was a really good joke. That was a really good joke. Like no, that is, he is so – he is bored out of his mind. He can't care less. The screenplay is super dumb. Where all the time everyone is telling him what his character is for the first fifteen minutes, it's just he's just like, <laughs> I just care about money. Hey, all I care about is getting paid. I don't got to be nice to you. I just want my money. Hey, you know what? You only care about money, Corso. Man, you know this guy over here. He only cares about money. I only care about. Oh Jesus Christ! It's the worst. And every part of it is just boring, and nothing happens, and. It might as well have been like rare stamps. It might have well been a uh, a thriller that takes place in the world of rare stamp collectors for as much as they actually care about the history of the books. Um, You know, it's it's it is totally mediocre and totally without merit, except for the end, because at the end, there's a really great shot where it's from Johnny Depp's perspective as he's stuck in the floor and you see Franklin, oh, yeah. Franklin Angela kind of be doing the satanic ritual and it going wrong, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark style. Uh, and like that, per, that the camera being right there on the floor because he's stuck in the floor is really – that's a really cool shot and it's like one long take. But everything else is the most boring thing ever. Um, and Are you purposely being like long. contrarian? The, no. the ending is like the worst – it no, looks it's, terrible. It's the it's only part that's terrible. alive. It's not interesting. It's cheesy. It's corny. It makes everything yeah. else. The other bad part of this movie is when the girl like floats down the stairway 
uh, and joins the fight down at the <laughs> river. Like everything that happens supernaturally, literally in the film, I can't stand. Um, everything that's sort of just implied that there might be um, Satan himself is a real thing or that there's this brotherhood um, that gets together every year and tries to resurrect Lucifer and all this stuff. Like everything that's talked about and implied but never re- you never really see, I think is all all the great stuff. I love him trying to find the books and finding the the differences in the pictures and like all that stuff is super creepy and, and fun for me. Um, I, I, I like the idea of there being and him being bored. I don't maybe, but I, I, I think that as a, as a rare book collector, this is exactly the type of guy. I mean, if you're going to make a hip rare book collector, I guess Johnny Depp is the guy you go with because Sure, he's going to seem sort of maybe aloof or or disinterested or just kind of uh, totally unidentifiable flat. by the audience. Yeah, no, that too. But but that's what I think a rare book collector would be totally unidentifiable. So that's a good or, choice. With, that's with a, that's why that's why the Indiana Jones movies are so good because he's exactly the same way real archaeologists and professors so, are. I, that's fucking hilarious you bring that up. I'm watching this movie today, and I was thinking, wow, this is kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark, except with all all the adventure and arrows and boulders and snakes. It's yeah, it's yeah. it's the adult it's like a sort super, of super super not fun version of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I yeah, I don't know. Like, I was trying to come up with another example because I feel like there are kids' movies that are like this, where you follow the clues and there's a satanic element the gate, the that you never gate, see. The gate. <laughs> but no, this is sort of just... the adult kind of. I don't want to say dumbed down, but it is kind of the adult adventure story. Um. Yeah. Into into a world that you're. I mean. Not to bring up the Goonies again, because the Goonies is not the right <laughs> parallel. It's just the only thing I can think of. To like, me, the, the parallel is, it would be National Treasure, something like that. Or the Da Vinci Code. Yeah, yeah, both of those. But this is a little bit more literary and a little bit smarter, but still staying on the side of yeah. populist entertainment. Yeah. Um and I don't know. I, I like all that stuff. I love it when he makes the discovery of, oh, the keys are in the other hand in this one. I I, I know it seems just so dumbed down, but it's like, oh, okay, f- I, now I see where we're going with this. What's, what's going to happen next? What's the next interesting bit of um, <laughs> plot that will happen? And and there are moments like it seems to me that every time he exits a house where he was investigating one of the books, like somebody tries to kill him or something weird happens. The score kicks in really hard. The scaffolding falls or a, a mysterious car drives oh, by like every time. I agree that it's it's a little repetitive and yeah, a, a, I, a little I bit much in way. there. But I, I'm still willing to overlook that in terms of just uh we want to get an idea across and that he's really in peril in a, like, why don't they just fucking kill him? But 
again, it's sort of a, it's sort of the adult version of a kid's movie where I feel like you kind of have to go along with that and just try to live in this guy's shoes and experience what he's experiencing and, um, just get lost in the intrigue and the mystery and the is Lucifer real thing without being the devil's advocate or like literally having a, a devil in the movie um, sure. until the last 10 minutes. So, which, so yeah. I, so here's, I, here's why I'm not being contrarian. The ending is super dumb and I'm not talking mm-hmm. about, and I'm not talking, I'm not saying I like the scene where he fucks demon lady on a car in front of fire or whatever. Like that's all dumb. And I, I mean, everything about the ending is super dumb, but formally it's the only interesting moment in the movie for me. And everything else just feels like a TV movie. Um, like everything else feels like a TV movie, but that moment where the camera is in the floor, I'm literally just talking about the shot, <laughs> like, and the fact that the shot plays out that long. That's what I okay. like about the ending. I'm not, trying to claim that like oh that's what the movie should have been the whole time though if the movie was that the whole time i would have said it's super dumb but it at least would have been more interesting but it's yeah i mean the reason i hate this movie so much is i didn't is i didn't like any part of it and it had a lot of parts of it because it's over two hours long i just shrugged it off that's pretty much how i felt i mean sure i i automatically Give it three stars. Shut up. You automatically no, give it three no, no, stars. No, 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 no. <laughs> I get really excited with satanic panic sort of stories. And, you know, oh, I like old books. So, like, there's little things the way it starts out. I'm like, oh, this 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 is very promising. I'm liking I would the, like- the premise, but, man, the follow-through sure isn't there. We don't have to go all the way through, but one of the things – if you want to watch the first 20 minutes of Ninth Gate and the first 20 minutes of Frantic, and to me, that is everything about why Frantic is a really good movie Ooh. and why Ninth Gate's a really bad movie. Because yeah. contrary, contrary to its title, one of the things I love about, the, is about Frantic is it very slowly becomes a, a thriller about a man chasing down clues mm-hmm. where – it just sets up the characters and the characters have a fairly lengthy conversation in their hotel room and you really get a sense of their dynamic and you get a sense of their marriage and then, you know, and he, and he doesn't know French and she does. And, you know, she's putting up with this about him and he's putting up with this about her and like it, they just feel very real and honest and they just sort of play out the way you sort of do when you first, when you, after you've taken a long trip and you first arrive in the hotel and you're just sort of like, okay. Uh, yeah, and how she disappears, it's really well Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, more subtle. Yeah, it's fantastic. Whereas everything about everything about the opening of Ninth Gate just feels like, again, like it, uh, I say TV movie, but it almost felt more like a pilot for like a TNT show where it's just like, all right, here we go. Here's Cortho, the guy who only cares about money. Did you hear about how Cortho only cares about money? He only cares about money. Look how cool he is, not, on, not only caring. Like, <laughs> all right, here's the premise. Here's all the characters. By the way, See, Cortho only cares about money. For me, the, the ninth gate in a nutshell is summed up when he goes to meet Geppetto, and there's two of them. Like, <laughs> that is... That's this movie. It feels like a like a um, like a Joe Dante movie for a minute 
in, in that moment. That's true. Like, no, that I will. I'll. I'll concede that. I know. I know. Jim just had an orgasm because you said the words Joe Dante. But <laughs> that was that, not, That's not how I sound during an orgasm. I don't go. Ooh, what do you like, sound like, like when you have an orgasm? Bad. Yeah. What do you sound like when you have an orgasm, Jim? Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> I sleep with you. Yay! You just you, sound, you sound like Homer bowling a strike. <laughs> Or having a donut. Or having a donut. You know, Patrick, um... <laughs> Regina heard that through my headphones, and she's burying her face in a pillow, <laughs> trying not to laugh. I've, I've met my quota for the Mike. month. Um, the reason why I want to have uh, a part two is so we can talk <laughs> Rosemary's Baby and Knife in the Water. That's what I'd like to do next time. That's interesting. I was going to say Rosemary's Baby and Death and the Maiden. Yeah, I love Death and the Maiden, actually. But um, we yeah, yeah, we I, didn't touch I, on that. But this, oh, Yeah, there's so much more to talk about. I feel like Death and the Maiden is maybe, is maybe my favorite Polanski movie. Um, mm. That's another one room. The whole thing takes place in one room. Well, yeah, I think almost it was initially a play. Death and the Maiden takes place in one room? Yes. Yep. Oh, so is it? I think it was based on a play. That's interesting. I think it is. I think you're right. I think it's based on a play. Um, so it's basically it was the lock of its era. Hmm. Did you have you seen the trailer for that yet, Jim? I've seen the. Oh no. Yeah. Wait, I'm not talking to you, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to answer you then. <laughs> lock is a. There's a new thriller coming out where Tom Hardy's in a car for the whole movie, and the whole movie is Tom Car- Hardy driving a car on the phone. It's like buried, except in a car. Oh wow! Yeah, is it buried pre- in a car. Is it prequel to Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels? No, I think it's actually a sequel to uh, um, Lock Up. To break it, <laughs> and no, I think it's a sequel to Break Into Electric Boogaloo because of all the popping and locking. Oh, yes. nice! Oh, you know, let's just go for it and give our top three Polanski movies. We're definitely gonna have to have another episode on him because there's. So much more to talk about, including Death in the Mating, which I love. So, uh, okay, you guys go first because I was not prepared for this, but sure, I'll, sure. I'll, I will be in thirty seconds. That's fine. I would say my uh, number three. Um, Ooh, you're be, going backwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Build up the suspense. Correct. My number three would be okay. Not that much suspense. Rosemary's Baby. My number two is Repulsion, and my number one is Chinatown. Oh, okay. My number three would be de- would be Death and the Maiden. Number two, Rosemary's Baby, and and then everyone knows that your number one is Ninth Gate, Jim. Yes, okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, Andrew. <laughs> Repulsion, which is what I'm starting to feel towards you every time you bring up the ninth gate. Really, your number one is Repulsion as yes. well. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. My number three would probably be uh, Frantic. Number two would be Death and the Maiden, and number one would be The Pianist. Ooh. Oh. Ah. Fuck. Rosemary's Baby and Ghost Rider, I really like too. Yeah, it's hard. A top three is hard. Can I do a top five? Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll top let five. You. We'll let you. So th- those are my top five, and kind of uh, number five would be the Ghost Rider for sure. Number four would be um, I was not prepared for th- number four would be 
uh, frantic. Then number three would be. And uh, now I'm totally I'm Rosemary's. confusing myself. Yeah, number three would be Rosemary's Baby. Number two would be Death and the Maiden. Number one would be The Pianist. Boom. Those are my five. Wow. Sure. I'm surprised that Chinatown wasn't on top of both of you guys' list. That'd be number six. That's my six, man. There you go. Number four. Oh, Chinatown. Chinatown for me is number one with a bullet. Hmm. The bullet, Jim. Yeah, but Repulsion's all psychological. Have you, either of you guys seen Fearless Vampire Killers? No. No, I haven't either. I actually own it and haven't watched it yet. I want to, though. Next Sharon time. Tate is in it, so that's... Mm. Yeah, next time. When you do a Part B, that can be kind of one of your side side projects. Yeah. So, man, this was great. I love talking Roman Polanski. I want to do it again tomorrow. Let's just do Part 2 tomorrow. All right, let's do Part 2 right. tomorrow. Yeah. We'll talk about uh, The Ninth Gate. And <laughs> we just How about... Have either of you seen uh, Venus and Fear? Or Venus and Fur? Or whatever? No. no. I have not either. It's supposed to come out in theaters, I think, soon. <clears throat> but I think it was released in Europe. Is that is that the one where Johnny Depp is a rare book collector? Uh, I think that's the sequel. Or the prequel. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, Jim will love it. Andrew, thanks so much for being on the show and defending Ninth Gate. For sure. Uh, um, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Great times. Great times. I love being on. I've said, I say this every time I'm on somebody else's podcast. I fucking love that I can just say goodbye and be done with it. And everybody best, else right? can do post production and uploading and show notes and all that bullshit. <laughs> oh, it's the, it's the greatest. It's, yeah, I, I love guesting on other people's shows. I hate having to come up with a fucking song. <laughs> Because oh, we, we Patrick, write, well, then I'll do the fucking songs. We we write parody <laughs> songs for every episode, which so are amazing. Don't ever this. stop doing that. Don't ever stop doing that. That's amazing. <laughs> I I applaud you so highly for doing so, that every show. It's I'm so not going to make you do it if you don't want to. The more the more I, no, we should keep doing it because the more we do, the more ridiculous that we're still doing it. It is, and the more uh, fulfilling it is for me to actually do it. So the listeners have already heard it, but what what was it that we just did? What was I the song? I have I haven't decided. I haven't of it yet. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, it's dramatic irony because the listeners <laughs> know and we don't. Ooh. I would love to do Cherie by Suicide, but the listeners probably did not Jeez. hear parody of Cherie by Suicide because you're not going to find a karaoke track to Cherie by Suicide. Though, can I say, real quick, right before we started recording, I found out that Question Mark and the Mysterians did a cover of Cherie, um, and it's the greatest thing ever. Go on YouTube, look up Question Mark and the Mysterians Cherie. That's uh, C-H-E-R-E-E. That's the greatest. So, uh, anyway, that's my plug. Uh, <laughs> find me find me on your latest... Uh, find me... On the comments section of any YouTube video in which someone's doing a cover of Cherie by Suicide. Find me anywhere but Facebook. Soon enough. Um, <laughs> you still haven't deleted your Facebook. No, I'm going to. I just wanted to make the announcement. Are you really? Website. Yeah, I'm just sick of it. Do you feel like it just kind of it just sucks your time for yes. no reason? I try, I try, I try so hard to get away from Facebook and... 
I know everybody's on. Sucks me back in every time. I delete. I del- I've deleted my Facebook like five times. I've in the noticed. Past. Once. Yeah, me yeah. too. I'm doing it. I'm. I'm. I'm an addict. <laughs> yeah. Google Plus, baby. Google Plus. I'm. You know what? You know what I'm gonna do? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll see you over at Friendster, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to MySpace. Yeah. I. I think I'm just gonna actually. It's, I'm gonna quit Facebook and then as sort of a. You know, like a uh, – what's the thing they use to get off heroin? Uh, methadone. Methadone. Yeah, so sort of like a Facebook methadone. I'm going to uh, get addicted to methadone. Got it. <laughs> that will be my – I'll get my little cups from the clinic and uh, then I won't care about how many likes my review of uh, The Fifth Element gets. Seriously though, Andrew, where can we find you? Oh, I'm at row3.com, mostly. That's where I'm at. Uh, if you're a letterboxed user, I am Andrew underscore James. That's also where I am on Twitter. And Facebook is Andrew James, too. But row3.com, you'll find me. And uh, that's where I mostly hang out. And we do our podcasts. And they're uh, about as long as this one was. So, yeah. Yeah. This is one of our longer ones in a while, but... I was very happy to do it, and I'm very happy to share with you where you can find me. I'm over at Instant Gym on Twitter, Letterboxd, and InstantGym.com. And, of course, you, your uh, Ninth Gate fan site, uh, net. <laughs> You're just going to do a whole bonus episode about how much I love Ninth. I'm, I'm getting it all out here. I know. If, if it become, you know, with with memes, you just got to let them go. And if they come back to you, then you'll know that they were yours. So uh, if, if we continue to so. talk about – if we continue to talk about Ninth Gate, if the fans demand Ninth Gate, then I'll know that I was successful in making you and your love of Ninth Gate uh, oh. stick in everyone's brains. You can find me on uh, Letterboxd uh, at Patrick or Paul. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick or Paul. You can find me uh, – my uh, viewing journal at Martha Marcy Nash and Young dot WordPress dot com. Though I have to admit, I haven't updated that in a little bit because uh, it's work, and I'm and I am uh, lazy. And uh, no. yeah, that's it. Um, boy, Brush oh boy. up on uh, Richard Linklater for the next episode, right? Oh, thanks, thanks, Andrew. That was really great of you to bring up Boyhood because yes, our next director is indeed Richard Linklater. Patrick, who's going to be on for that? Uh, that would be uh, Regina Barry. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Regina Barry, you what? just found out you're going to be on Directors Club. Wait a minute. How does that feel? This is unprecedented. Doing a Google search to? right now. What? <laughs> is this true? I I think I believe so. <gasps> yeah, yeah. Oh, she's old. She's old. Well, according to the uh, when I do a Google search for her, she, she's either a cartoon or really old. No, it's the cartoon. I'm having cartoon. Yeah, Regina Barry, Regina Barry is my partner, um, who I love and I live with. And In now crime. we're going to be watching Daisy Confused together, which is oh, a very nice. romantic thing. Are you guys, what do you guys do? So you're doing Dazed and Confused and then the before or what? No, I'm thinking Flacker and. What else did we say, Patrick? Honestly, (laughs) we're on on completely different pages. Because honestly, I feel like I want to do just the before movies. 
but then again, I haven't seen any. Oh of them. well, if that's what. Wait, you want are to you do. serious? You haven't seen any of the before movies? No, sure haven't. I've been waiting for a special occasion. Oh, this is the special occasion. Okay, let's do that, Patrick. That'd be great. Yeah, that's romantic. There you go. It'll be uh, it'll be either romantic or it'll be super the opposite of romantic, depending on how those before movies go. It'll totally be interesting because Mm -hmm. so you guys are. I would I would recommend you watch them together, except for before midnight. Maybe watch those separately. (laughs) That's true. This oh man, this is depending on how you well each other. Just in time for Valentine's. Oh, ooh, perfect. (laughs) Okay, well. That's the show, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Andrew, thanks again for being on. We'll you bet. You, it was awesome. We'll have you back again soon. So we'll see you in two weeks for the Richard Linkletter episode. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's Baby. Repulsion. He came from the Second Polish Republic, yeah. I sound during an orgasm. I don't go. Ooh, what do you like, sound like, like when you have an orgasm? Bad. Yeah. What do you sound like when you have an orgasm, Jim? Woo-hoo! <laughs> <laughs> I'd sleep with you. Yay. You just, you, sound, you sound like Homer bowling a strike <laughs> <laughs> or having a donut or having a donut. You know, Patrick, um, <laughs> Regina heard that through my headphones and she's burying her face in a pillow. So,